listen, don't let this place get to you. You stay locked up long enough and you start to believe that you're a podcast. What, what, do you know what the line you know, you must know what the line is i don't know what, what what are you replacing there no no david i don't know what the line is i have no idea what the line is yes the line is you start to believe that you're nuts i don't know what lines are there in this movie you know what yeah no that's fine here are some of the other lines in this movie i i'm a little girl mm, i'm flirty <laughs> uh, i'm artsy and i wear glasses I don't think you're doing lines from the movie right now. I think you're you're. I think those are verbatim. I think those are verbatim, and that's that's that character's introduction, Iris, where she just kind of tells them, "Oh, I'm the crazy one." Oh no, I'm sorry. That's I I got Iris and Emily confused. That's that's Iris is the artsy glasses one. She's the one who says, "You, you stay in here long enough, you start to become convinced that you're nuts." Yeah. You so you got you got Iris is 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 glasses, and you've got. Sarah, what's she? She's uh Sarah is flirty. Flirty, right? Zoe is is baby. It's sort of like the Spice Girls. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're right. Spice now that I think okay. about it, Kristen is scary. She's very scary. Uh I think Sarah, <laughs> Sarah is ginger. Sarah is ginger. Zoe right. is baby. baby. The question, I guess Emily is posh and iris is sporty i'm sort of falling it it's sort of hmm. we're losing the thread at we're the losing it that's a okay bit. yeah that's okay but there's still you know inside of us are all there are five spices right yeah that's that's the idea right and the spice melange i like to call it inside <laughs> yeah, all five exactly. of us um david uh david um you know this is the end of our john carpenter miniseries i should say of course that this is a, a blank check with griffin and david i'm griffin I'm David. That's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby. And for the last, oh, almost five months, we've been doing the films of John Carpenter, Johnny C. Wait, five months? Really? I think we started August, September, October, November. December. It's, I mean, it's a little under five months, four and a half or something, right? Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. We started end of August. We're we're finishing beginning of December. Uh, I don't know. I mean, time's an illusion. But hey, it was a good ride. It was a great ride. It was a great ride that Ben, producer Ben, you gifted yeah. to us because, of course, John Carpenter was the winner of our March Madness series where once a year we let our listeners vote for which director we're going to cover. And uh, we, we did brackets where we each picked uh, our Elite Eight and Ben's pick John Carpenter, his his top pick ended up winning this whole thing. This has been a bit of a Ben's choice. In a very chill and ordinary competition. Absolutely. Definitely didn't stress me out. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> as I was on the verge of becoming a father. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But the point is uh, we've known that this was on the books and it's been public knowledge that this was on the books for a long time, leading into then five months of actually doing the episodes. And I feel like the thing that's been hanging over us uh, like the sort of Damocles this entire time is we have to end on the ward. The ward. John Carpenter's. I guess so. You know what, Griffin? I hinted at this. You know, I think I thought this movie was way worse than it is because it, I guess it like never really came out and sure. the, the poster made it look like torture porn. Yeah. And then I watched it and I was like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Like it's not, you know, it's probably, it might be his worst movie. But that doesn't that doesn't mean it's like it, it was it was I felt OK watching it. This is the thing. 
I, I think it's his worst movie, sort of by default. I don't think it's like a horrible film. I don't think it's anywhere near the bottom of the barrel of movies we've covered on this show. But I, but I do think in its own way, it's like the most depressing end to a series we've had so far. Mm, that's that's sort of my thesis I'm, I'm working on. I don't agree with you for a bunch of reasons. I was saying this to Ben and our guest who can talk. At any time. If you want. At any, at any time. time. At any I can just time. jump uh, in. That's true. Yeah. yeah. You can just jump in. It's um, encouraged. <laughs> but uh, the Burton mini and a couple other times, I think a little bit with the Spielberg mini, the, the, our very long minis, they sometimes end with us being like, all right, enough of this. Right. You know, we're just kind of like, okay, we've, we've had the conversation. We're just sort of having it. Over I, I over agree. At this point. I agree. Here- I don't feel that way here. I could do another month of this guy. I know the saddest one. The saddest one is Rhodey's. That is the saddest end. Well, sure. That is the saddest <laughs> yeah, that was, end. That was, that, <laughs> was, that, was, that was tough. Man, Ooh, was you tough. guys watched that whole thing too, remember? I know, in like one night. It, it's also weird. There, there have not even been like whispers, I feel like, of another Cameron Crowe project since then. And it's not like he's persona non grata. Like he does interviews and he'll do retrospectives and he re-releases the almost famous soundtrack on an 18 disc set that I bought like a, an idiot. It feels like post Aloha. He just went, I'm, I'm good. I think I've done it. Well, I'm but good. then roadies is like right after Aloha and you're like, okay, Cameron, scale it back, Here work it with another yeah. writer, get back into the sweet spot. And then roadies is, you're right. Perhaps an even more depressing end. Wasn't he supposed to make beautiful boy? He was. I guess that, yeah, he that was, was sort of at the, the last time we time did the miniseries. That's what he was discussed. attached to do. And there was a thing where he said he had written a script that was like his small change that he wanted to make a movie that was like all kids because he wow. saw a lot of kids he liked when he was casting Aloha and he started writing something just for an ensemble of children. Uh, neither of those movies I've heard anything about for so long. Obviously, and B- Beautiful Boy got made by someone else. Um, I think the difference here is, and then I'm going to make a very smooth, clean transition into introducing our guest formally, who is talking a perfect amount for not having been introduced yet. Uh, but could talk even more if he wants, uh, is <laughs> that with Burton, with Pro, even, I mean, Spielberg, I'd say less of a thing because you're like, Spielberg's made good movies since we, you know, finished covering him. We go back and circle around to him. Burton's going to make more stuff. I don't know how excited I am about the stuff he's going to make going forward, but he's going to make more stuff, right? Uh, Dumbo th- too. Too more Dumbo, too, too, Dumbo versus Trumbo. But <laughs> I am trying Imagine. to fly in the bathtub. <laughs> um, there is just the question of whether this is the, the last thing John Carpenter does. Yes, right. The uh, is that really he doesn't want to do one last kind of obviously he works. He does music. He he's out there. That's what he's right. That's the thing that makes it more depressing to me than the other directors uh, you mentioned. I mean, the only other one. No, here's the answer. There's one that's more depressing than this that we've covered. It's John Singleton's career ending with abduction. Because it's like book formally closed. That's true. That's worse. Because there's no. uh, And you know what, Griffin? The Witches was a pretty bad final. We've had a lot of bad last episodes of miniseries of late. Yeah, but Brooks (laughs) tanks pretty hard at the end, too, with how did this get or how did. Uh. Yes. Yes. What do you, yes. I, how do you I, I can't even remember the damn title anymore. What do you know? How do you know? How did this get made? Drew, are yeah. you implying that that title is nonspecific and difficult to remember? 
Oh, not at all. It's incredibly specific, and I just can't remember it. It's my problem, I'm sure. Look, the tee-up I'm doing here is that our guest today is, uh, despite being someone who's long overdue to get on the pod, um, is someone who has, uh, is, is something of a Carpenter expert and has a very close connection to Carpenter in many ways. Uh, and he reached out as soon as Carpenter won and said, I'd love to do anything. And we kind of like, I, I, I went to you, Drew, and I said, would you take the bullet for the ward? Like, I don't want to end on a downer. I think you're such a blockbuster guest for Carpenter. Would you mind juicing up a movie we might have less to talk about with more context? It feels like a great place to come in and talk Carpenter because we can kind of now talk because I've listened to your whole series, except what hasn't gone up yet. And I've really enjoyed the series. I find that when I listen to Blank Check, yours is one of the few podcasts I yell at a lot. I just I want to be in the middle of the conversation frequently. I'm like, oh, I want to I want to let me interject. But of course, you can't hear me for some reason. So um, yeah, so this series has been definitely full of that. And um, and there's uh, like it's a perfect moment because this was the movie he made right after I had spent several years working with him. So it's it's a perfect moment of timing. That's the other thing. It just felt like I, I was like, I don't think this is the movie you'd be most excited to talk about. But I think in a way it could end up being the most interesting episode for you to come on just because of where it lands on everything. But our guest today, of course, is film critic Drew McWeeny of Wah, the Netflix series, but also writer of John Carpenter's Pro-Life and Cigarette Burns. Wah. In- Co-writer. Indeed. Wah. 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 Before we begin, I told you, Griffin, uh-huh. that I have a very special Ben story. Oh, yeah. I have something to tell Ben, to share with Ben. Okay. That I have been okay. excited to share with you. Yes. Oh, ben, wow. when I first moved to Los Angeles back in 1990, um, I looked around for whatever film job I could get. I was managing a theater, but I was also taking whatever film side jobs I could get. And my first big gig was as an extra. And I did extra work in a couple of movies, including Clifford. I am oh, in Clifford. Shit. Wait. Oh. Drew. Wait. I okay. Wait, when? Now, what scene? Or, uh, hold on. Yeah. Is it at the. Is it at, it's the, at the party, party when he throws oh the party? My God. I am at yeah. the party. So they shot that Great at party. some house out in the Pacific Palisades. And it was this entire night. And to do the dance, to get everybody in sync for dancing, they would play the first like 25 seconds of Groove is in the Heart wow. and then stop the music. And we had to keep the beat to that. I still to this day cannot hear Groove is in the Heart without getting a twitch like it, that beginning is burned in. But it was about four or five hours of just watching Martin Short do shtick. From about five feet away. So that's incredible. Unbelievable evening. It was an unbelievable yeah. evening. Yeah. Yeah. Are you visible in the movie? From like here down. That's about okay. It. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's a whole there's a whole section of the party where this is all you get of anybody, basically. Yeah. But so, I'd recognize yeah. that torso. We should mention that uh, <laughs> you, you are currently wearing a pork shop express uh, shirt. Indeed. And right over your shoulder. You're just filming in what I assume is your office. But the framing of the zoom window right now, directly over your shoulder, is the head of of the demon from Pro just popping Life. in to say hi. What's right, up? but it, it looks like he's sneaking behind you. <laughs> Do you take Zoom meetings and just not acknowledge it? Exactly. Exactly. Nice. He's just back there I love keeping that. company. Drew, I want to just start out with asking you the the massive, all consuming question. Sure. Uh, can you tell us about your relationship with John Carpenter? And I mean, in, in all senses, as as a film fan and then also as you became someone who got to collaborate with him. Um, 
I I, ha- I had a really weird series of encounters with Carpenter over the course of my life because I met him when I was 14. I was um, I lived in Chattanooga um, in Tennessee and had no connections to the film industry. My friend's mom did extras casting. So she had done movies like The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia and The Dollmaker and a couple of things like that. But nothing really big had come through. And then she gets this notice that this John Carpenter film is coming to town. And she reaches out to my mom and says, hey, I think I can probably get him a day on the set just to stand around in the background. Um, Would he be interested? So I went and it ended up being a truly formative, life changing experience because I when I got to the the base camp, they were shooting uh, the scene uh, for Starman. So he comes into town for Starman and they shot a ton of it in that area. They shot the big forest fire in that area. The scene that I was there for was the day um, the guy pulls them over on the side of the road and they get out and uh, he blows the fire or the telephone pole up with the spheroid. And then the guy gets back in his truck and drives away. So it's like an encounter on the side of the road. And um, when I got to base camp, they drove me out. The unit publicist drove me out and the whole way out. I was ranting and raving about. So I read in Starlog that this was going to be Brian De Palma and then that changed studios and that and halfway to the location he's like what are you what kind of freaky little movie trivia machine are you you <laughs> mutant so he got me out to the set and introduced me to carpenter and i have zero idea like hearing all the stories about grumpy john makes no sense to me because literally he took a 14 year old sat me next to him in video village talked to me all day and then introduced me to the movie stars and really answered questions and told me what he was doing and there was zero reason to. I was nobody. I it wasn't like there was some favor he was doing for somebody important. I was just some kid that came to the set and lost his mind. And uh, yeah, he ended up giving me a copy of the script. So it was the first screenplay I ever read in actual screenplay format. And uh, it was life changing. And then years and years go by. I moved to L.A. in 1990 and I start working at Davis Video a Laserdisc store. And uh, he's one of our customers. And I remember the first day he came in and we had a copy. We had just gotten in a letterbox copy of the thing. And so I asked my manager, I said, do you mind if I just pull that and get John to? And he goes, no, no, it's fine. John, John won't care. And so I did that. And as he was signing it, I said, listen, you won't remember this. But years ago when you were shooting Starman and I didn't even finish and he started laughing, he goes, are you the kid with the broken arm? <laughs> I said, yeah, that was that was me. And he goes, oh, yeah, I remember you. Wow. You were a lot. And so. I ended up getting to know him a little bit there. And then when Ain't It Cool started and I started working there, I interviewed him a few times for that. And he just kind of invited, opened the door on the process, was like, well, listen, I'm doing stuff. When Ghost of Mars was shooting uh, mm-hmm. or in post, he said, why don't you come down and hang out? I'm going to score the film. And so I went to the recording studio and just hung out while he was recording. And wow. for that film, his entire technique was he would have a guest in like Buckethead <laughs> and then he would have a joint going. And he would just stand there and play guitar while he was watching stuff and go, play something. And Buckethead would play something and go, yeah, it's good. It was the craziest, <laughs> like, three weeks of watching him Rolls. work. And he was so entertaining. But it was just like a, I kept running into him and kept having these encounters. So when Masters of Horror got off the ground, I was not connected to him. I met Mick Garris is the one that okay, um, so invited that was, me to. That was my more specific question. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it was it was not because of John. It was Mick Garris, who I had also met at Dave's video. And Mick was the first guy in this town to really open doors for me and um, let me on sets. And uh, Mick was amazing. Uh, I could tell you stories about the hook set because of when Sleepwalkers was shooting like it's it, it, Mick was connected to all sorts of stuff and let us in a lot of doors. But he was the one that called us and said, listen, we're doing this. And if you want to pitch, you can pitch a couple of things. 
and he bought both of them in the room the first day. Um, he said, we'll just do these for the two seasons. We'll do back to back. So you decide which one you want to do first. And we did cigarette burns first. And it was only after we turned it in that John read it and committed to it. And that was kind of one of those moments. To interrupt you for a moment to zoom out for, for context for people who don't know. So this is post Ghost of Mars when Carpenter's like, I'm out, right? Yes. And he was very done. He was retired. Yeah. Right. He was like over it. And and I think a thing that we've come to realize or at least surmise uh, as this has been going on, uh, David and I, is that like there does seem to be this disconnect between the the grumpy carpenter of uh, pull quotes in interviews mm-hmm. and and who the guy kind of actually is. And there was a, a kind of um, self-protective front, you know, uh, of, of just kind of acting over it uh, to sort of well, protect I think the industry I think himself him from the industry. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. He definitely felt like and I, I truly believe this, too. There should be a certain point at which. You know, we saw Mike Lee on Twitter last week and they were talking about how Mike Lee can't this, find financing. This for is very film. depressing. Yeah, it's maddening. Yes, yes. It's yeah. maddening. It's Mike Lee. Just give right. him the goddamn money. Right. It's Mike Lee. There's no argument. Yeah. He's 78 years old. Just that man should just make movies until he doesn't want to anymore. hundred percent. Right, it should. Obviously, if Mike Lee walks in and is like, I need 90 million dollars. I'm making a movie about a spaceship. I might have like 10 more questions. But if Mike yeah, Lee's like, like I'm trying to make a Mike Lee movie. It's like, great. I love those. Those are uh, have a proven track record. Uh, yes. Same with Carpenter. Yes. Right. It's like fucking if, if we're going to live in a world in which these conglomerates and tech companies eat us up, the least they can do is sort of be like patrons of the arts for like our elder statesmen where it's like Netflix, just give Mike Lee eight million dollars and shut up. Well, the funny thing is that is kind of what these companies do, at least for a little while, not Carpenter, maybe, but like. And then, you know, now maybe they're all starting to grow beyond. But like, you know, Amazon in those early days, it was like, let's have a Whit Stillman movie and a Spike Lee movie. You know, like that's that was their early strategy. The, right. the first five years of Amazon really seemed like let's take all the 90s auteurs of like the indie revolution who cannot get financing anymore. Well, what's a movie you want to make? Right. And like, they just you know, come on. Yeah. Uh, Jarmusch is back. Still uh, Stillman's back. We're giving Spike a bigger budget than he's had in a while. Like they just kind of got everyone off the bench. And then, as always seems to happen, these people use kind of prestige to get their foot in the door. And then they increasingly sort of disregard it. Or if they want to do prestige, they want to do the Irishman version of prestige. They'd rather spend $200 million on that than, than making 15 movies from all the other guys who don't have the same clout as Scorsese. I think, uh, I think he had had three really difficult experiences in a row. Mm-hmm. And right. So you know, we're talking what, what, what are we talking at this? Vampires point? was vampires. really tough. Um, Escape from L.A. broke his heart. Escape, right. Escape from L.A. Vampires, Ghosts of Mars, right? And Those Ghosts of Mars. Three. All three really hard for, and unnecessarily hard. Like, right. I know I know with Escape from L.A., he starts with a certain budget and they slash his budget almost in half as they start shooting and cut really? the schedule. Oh, they, they went from 75 million to 34 million without cutting the script. That's he, Crazy. All the info we had was that it was 50. That's nuts. He lost his mind. It was they cut almost half of his budget and it wow. was a nightmare. Like it. And I love the original Escape from L.A. script. To me, the difference was in those screenplays was always that he never lived in New York. 
Mm-hmm. New York, to me, Escape from New York feels like a movie written by a guy who's never been to New York. And, <laughs> yes. right. and this is what he imagines New York is like. And then there's gangs and the subways are all in and they do it. Like, that's what it feels like. Whereas Escape from L.A. is a direct satire of the city he has lived in his whole life yes. Yes. and that he hates very much. <laughs> um, right. And right. so there is I think there's a real blistering wit to the script of Escape from L.A. that never really gets translated to the screen because he's just playing catch up the whole time, trying to mm. just keep that film from falling apart. And that's it's, it guts me. It, vampires. There was a point where he left. He just quit. Um, there was a point midway through the shoot where he was like, I'm done and got up and left the set. Cause vampires didn't, they also cut the budget out from under him. That vampires, happened again. Right? And yeah. right, right, Nicotero, right. I think it was Nicotero directed two or three days of vampires until they could get John back. Because he just was okay. like, I, what am I doing? What am I doing? Yeah. Why am I fighting you? Why do I have to fight you? I'm making a movie for you. I'm John Carpenter. I know what I'm doing. I, it, I do also feel like those three movies are the movies where he is. I don't know, like, you know, like the kind of blockbuster that Hollywood makes is changing, right? Like, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. and there's there. Right. And, and, and the approach effects wise and the approach story wise is changing and the notes he's getting are. You know, the, the corporate thinking is changing and all that, right? We, like, we you know. talked a lot about because it hasn't come out yet. But in, in the Ghosts of Mars episode, no, we talk a lot about how like the next year after that is uh, I think the first Resident Evil and then the Transporter is the same year or the year after that. And it's like between the new wave of what Screen Gems movies are post Resident Evil, right? Mm. And then sort of what Europa Corp formalizes with Transporter. It's like those are the styles of these types of B movies from then on out. And he now is in a different vein. He's a step in the past. Yeah. You know, he's not making MTV stylized films. Which is why I think the pitch that Mick Garris made for Masters of Horror worked, which was just here's your budget. Right. I'll give you a script and then you just go shoot that script and there will be no interference and you just go do what you want. And it came out of these dinners he would organize, right? I mean, we've referenced this a lot before, yeah. but sort of that whole generation of horror and genre filmmakers would get these dinners together, largely organized by Mick Garris, who we've t- referenced a bunch, not just because he comes up in all these different ways. People don't get it, but Mick is the glue that holds 80 genre together. Yes. Mick is from the very beginning when he was working at Avco and then when he was a publicist and when he was working with Universal. There's the fear on film thing we reference yeah. all the time. That's that's Landis, Carpenter and Cronenberg. Uh, right. Yep. He was essential in kind of shaping that narrative in the early 80s of these are the guys worth paying attention to. And even though it didn't quite work, it's the reason the seeds got planted. And I think. Yep. It took root with a bunch of us that were paying attention and that were of, of a certain age and who were wide open to it. Right. You and Rebecca Swan are like two prime examples of people who grew up as children of those filmmakers. Oh, my God. And yes. now Mick Garris is seeing this whole generation of guys who cannot get their movies made anymore. Uh, and so, right. His pitch is let me take all these guys I invite to dinner every time, essentially give them blank checks within a very limited budget, you know, shooting schedule TV, but like creative free reign. And the smart thing was he pitched it as, well, it's how funded by Anchor Bay. It's how funded by Showtime. So if we do something that Showtime doesn't like, fine, we'll just dump it to DVD. It'll be uncensored. Nobody will get to cut you. And that was really the big promise. And this is like the peak of DVD sales. And Anchor Bay had made like a fucking fortune reissuing every 80s horror movie every other month. So they knew like no matter what. 
if we slap a disc out that has Carpenter on it or Dante on it or whomever on it, Tobe Hooper or Don Coscarelli or whatever, it will work. It will sell. It'll move units. Yeah. yeah. And so it was. they gave us, basically they told us you have a million dollars to do an hour and okay. whatever you want within that, go. Yeah. And, and so that was it. And, and, and so just to circle back here, uh, Mick is sort of gathering together writers, having them just pitch ideas. And then he's going to the directors and saying, do any of these jump out to you? That's the process. I know he had approached to some of the directors and they said, I have a story. Okay. Some of the directors didn't. And John was at a place where John was in his I'm eating fried chicken and playing Xbox phase. <laughs> Creatively and was just out. not. Yeah. Yeah. And just wasn't interested. Tired and, of fighting, as, as we yeah. said. He's just, I'm tired of fucking having to fight. And so I think it was when Mick said, I have several scripts. Are you interested in at least reading a script? Mm-hmm. And John was like, if I see something I like, mm-hmm. maybe. And so he didn't know it was me when he uh, chose that script. It wasn't until we got in the room and then he connected all the dots and was like, oh, my God. That's On so that funny. first day, <laughs> I was like, all right, fellas. And uh, he is as terrifying as you would think. Uh, our first first thing he said was, all right, I like it. Every single page we got work to do. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> OK, here we go. But he taught me. And one of the things that he really emphasized, and I think it was budget was the reason. But it when you guys talk about all of his movies, whether it's big budget or small budget. He very he has the same mindset, which is on the page. You can write stuff like there's atmosphere, there's mood, there's things like that. That's not something you can shoot. He wants the script to be, what am I pointing my camera at? What is the thing I'm looking at? Don't tell me anything else. I don't need anything else. Just tell me what I'm pointing my camera at. And I know how to make that scary. Yeah. So you can you can put gravy on it on the page. It doesn't matter. John's going to shoot. John has his own visual plan. And you should just trust him. Get out of his way. He really taught us to strip everything down. Think about what he was shooting. Think about what we were accomplishing. I when you're getting notes from John Carpenter on horror and you're just having conversations with him about what scares you and why this is scary and why this isn't scary. It's awesome. Like that is the best creative experience you could hope for. And he was a hundred percent engaged on both. He really enjoyed this process. I have a couple uh, uh, logistical questions. Sure. Uh, what, what was the time in between the two of them being shot? They had a two season pickup from the get go. Or did Mick just buy both scripts so he had stuff in the pool? That it was he bought both treatments and okay. then had us commission the first script. Then after the first season, they knew they were going to do a second. We shot the first one summer of 2005, and we started shooting the day my first son was born. Wow. So that's how I remember the date is like it was the day that he was born. And um, then the second one was the next spring. We shot that. Okay. And um, and then on the second one, we kind of didn't have total freedom. Uh, we ran into the money thing. And I think one mm. of the reasons that I was really surprised that John did the ward was um, we were about to start shooting. We had 10 days and a million dollars like we did on the first one. And then we got told at the end of our first day, we just lost two days because Landis went long. So uh, we lost days oh, to Landis. Yeah, fucking Landis. Fucking Landis. And watching John absorb that and go, all right. And we don't really have an ending on pro-life. It's one of my it's one of the craziest things about the episode is we didn't shoot our ending. Our ending's kind of not in the movie. So it's, yeah. we just kind of ran out of time. And John had to 
cut an ending around something that wasn't really done. And mm-hmm. um, but it was just we we literally ran out of money on that one. And to be with somebody who is this classic Titan filmmaker who has made landmark game changing genre defining movies and you're struggling to get two extra days yeah. on a one hour thing. It just I can see why it broke him like it. It just got to him again. I feel like I've invoked this before, but there's this interview I, I that sort of haunts me uh, from maybe like 10 years ago with um, uh, John Waters. And they were asking him why he hadn't made another movie since A Low Down Dirty Shame. And they're like, you're John Waters. You're a legend. You can't get financing. And he's like, I can't get financing for the movie I would like to make, which would cost 15 to 20 million dollars. I meet with people and they say, if I have a script I could do in th- for, you know, five million dollars in 21 days that I could get that greenlit. And he's like, but I'm too old and I'm too tired. And I, I did that so many times. And, well, you know, why, right. right when I was in my fucking 20s, I was like, oh, shut up. Take the job. What are you complaining about? You get to make movies and then you work enough and you're like, there is a point where it sort of becomes more soul crushing to feel like you're stuck in this like. You know, like your Sisyphus just having to fucking push this boulder up the hill over and over and over again. Not that you ever need it to be easy, but you're just like, I should be past the these specific battles. It should be creatively difficult, right. Right. not financially and logistically difficult. Every and you time, shouldn't be fighting because. over two fucking days like shit like that. Right. Where he's just like, I'd rather be retired and fucking be John Waters and make cameos and Alvin the Chipmunks four and fucking present awards at the Independent Spirit Awards and have a ball, then make another movie for no money. We pitched him so much. We tried so hard. And there was about six months where I really thought we were going to get him back into doing a feature. Really? It really felt like it was close. And In the last 10 we, years? Yeah, this was right after Pro-Life. We were really trying to get him to do a feature. And we had a couple of things he he liked and he was he was like maybe and maybe and so i could tell the energy was there and he said in interviews and this is that's the whole thing the only reason he made the ward was he said many times that like doing the two masters of horror things kind of reinvigorated him reminded him why he liked it yeah and i think it was the fact that we had fun and uh, part of it was that we were so um hyper about having him on set like it was such a big deal to us and i think he kept being entertained by the fact that we were flipping out and i don't think that's something he's been around i i truly think a lot of his collaborators are somewhat blasé about him and i think he has this especially towards the later part of his career i go to mars was not a set where ice cube was like wigging out that he was working with john carpenter right, i don't think that right, was the right. feeling i i don't think jason statham came to work whistling but you know <laughs> um I, I I do think he he had the energy for a little while but then i think the business ground it right back out of him and it doesn't surprise me that Having worked with Cody Carpenter on the scores for both of our films, Cody was great. And that part of the process was clearly John's favorite, making the music, getting the getting Cody to write a theme that he could listen to and play with. And um, it doesn't surprise me that he leaned into the live music end of things, that he's making more music. I think he's just trying to be happy during this last part of whatever his career is. And it is really lovely to see him enjoying himself on stage and to see kind of a mellow, happy Carpenter. And to see like middle of the night tweets about ABBA and stuff, that's, <laughs> that is, it's, it's all delightful. Great. It's a, all it's good. a good, good look for him. And it's definitely not where he was for a little while. 
but he he's clearly there's a he feels liberated by not having to take on all these burdens we're talking about the the glee in these interviews where he's like i just watch halloween kills and i write the music i don't have to make any decisions about the movie like it's already been done uh, you know like it's not just that he wants to like you know work on his side projects he he almost seems to just want to not make movies <laughs> like it, it's sort of yeah. weird because otherwise he would he could totally do one right now if he walked into blumhouse tomorrow right Oh, they would. I, well, there was there was a thing that they were talking about. Right. And I this think is it, this thing. We keep on trying to get the specifics on it. Yeah. But but there was a thing that almost kind of happened. Right. Yeah. And and I've heard I've heard there's reasons he won't do certain things. You know, we we tried to pitch a Western at one point thinking that would be an easy sell. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's not. He he actually will not make a Western. Um, He explained it finally that he doesn't ever want to direct horses. He's like, if you could come up with a perfect Western that there were no goddamn horses in, I might do it. But life's too short, man. I'm not directing horses. It's not happening. You, you also, you have to, you have to just imagine that he, he must sort of feel like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football. You know, like how many times have they told me this time it's going to be easy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or this time we're going to respect you or let you do what you want. Where even if you hand him a script that seems appetizing, he's just like, where are they going to fuck me? Mm -hmm. You know, he's but, waiting for it at this right, point. The yeah. horses, the horses will fuck it up for me. You know, it's like <laughs> he's looking for the thing that will make it unpleasant. I mean, to be fair, directing horses seems annoying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, horses are undirectable. Yeah. <laughs> seems like a pain in the ass. Right. Um, uh, no, they're direct. You sit on them and you... Right, you do this and mm -hmm. you say nay. I mean, you mm -hmm. they say nay. No, you, you gotta say, say yeah. nay. No. Whoa, <laughs> you say yeah. whoa. Ben, exactly. weigh in here whoa. as an expert. Yeah, I am an expert. I I have ridden on a dang horse, um, but no, they stink too. Like stink. <laughs> um, hey yeah. Drew, how about this? I've been throwing this idea out, where I think Carpenter should make um, another Assassin's Creed movie. See, I and his video game love, I it's so pure and it is so yeah. real. He adores big A-list video games. And yeah, we've talked about Assassin's Creed, which I'm a big fan of that series. And and it's funny because he when you get him talking about it, he is every 17 year old dude just mm. talking about his game mechanics he likes and the vibe he likes. And uh, I think it's I'm surprised how many directors Video games are their vice. They are yeah. their secret vice. And I think if people knew who they were playing video games with half the time online, they would lose their minds because there are a lot of really terrific world-class auteurs who are just fucking around killing you in Call of Duty and uh yeah, having a blast. And but he loves he loves the first person, you get lost in them, you spend hours and days and months lost in a world. He loves that, man. And the idea of him making a movie set in one of those worlds is super appealing if they gave him the resources and if they gave him the time to do it correctly. And I don't know that I don't know that they do that even for like the young hot shit directors they try to give these movies to. This is the whole thing. Like, I'd like, because there's always been, you know, it's in our notes and he's talked about Dead Space, right? Which like, oh, he's a game great. he's obsessed with. And when you play Dead Space, which is a great game, especially the first one, like you absolutely can imagine a John Carpenter version of that. Like it's, it's perfect, but I just have to assume that, you know, people it, with something like that, it's like a property now, right? Like it, it's, yeah. 
there's there's so many suits in the room being like, well, 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 the Dead Space movie has to be X, Y, and Z. Because like the way this Uncharted movie has played out, I'm watching this trailer and I'm just, it just, it looks so artless. And like, you can hear I guess the I shouldn't be groups. surprised. Right. Like, I mean, it's a video game movie. Like, it's not like I should be so precious about this, but I'm just like, like, just let someone, the, the, you know, there's so much you can work with and it just feels corporate let now assassin's creed is a weirder movie. i do love that i movie mean this is our whole way, appreciation you know, for, of assassin's creed exactly where it's like, like it yeah. sort of gets away with it right fucking knock the story all that you want it is a movie that has like vibes and has weird directing choices yeah i just wish they would turn one of these directors who loves this stuff loose like verbinski on bioshock yeah. or yeah. you know peter yeah. jackson on halo somebody who genuinely loves yeah. and plays and lives in these worlds who then actually translates one would be amazing but Bioshock is another one he publicly Carpenter said he wanted to do. He, he right? Does, yeah. right. Well, well, he said it would make a great movie, uh, you know, but like with Dead Space, I imagine like Carpenter directly said, I would love to make a Dead Space movie. I don't think he was ever like formally attached or anything, but but like I just imagine him walking in and him being like, this is what I think. And then being like, OK, well, you know, <laughs> and then it, and it just his face changing as they start their side of it right like uh the budget oh, has to be fairness. this and it has to set up this and it has to include that you know and like just him being ah fuck you people like right like uh, just yeah. from what i understand of him like that, that he would just immediately be turned off i assume i don't know um johnny c and instead he makes the ward guys he made the ward yeah and i can i can see i can see what he probably saw in the script which was stripped down worked with actors one location, basically, and it's just digging in and being able to build atmosphere. Um, Those are all of the quotes we found from him are just it it was small. It was contained. It was actor based. It wasn't effects driven. He can see it in his head. Corners, hallways, you know, shadows, you know, like it's it's claustrophobic. But it right. feels like more of a strategic choice in that sense rather than a, a a passion choice like ideally you wish he could find a script that he may be really connected to that also checked all of those boxes i don't really feel his heart in this yeah and it's a I, part of the problem for me is post post cundy and i look my great regret is that we couldn't get showtime to let us shoot in scope as opposed to square because yeah. to me carpenter half of carpenter is the visual aspect ratio the look the and without that, it doesn't feel like a Carpenter film to me. The Ward doesn't feel like a Carpenter film to me because it doesn't look like a Carpenter film. The, the Ward is the only one of his movies not to be shot in Panavision other than uh, Dark yeah. Star, I believe. Or Assault on Precinct 13. Even on our set, he had the Panavision lens. He's got the lens, that same Panavision lens he's been using his whole career with every film's name engraved on it that he yeah. shot with it. That's nuts. And it's also... It's shot by Aaron Orbach, who he only worked with on this. Like, you know, it's it's not shot by what's his name? Gary uh, Kibbe. Yeah. yeah. Kibbe? Keep, Kibbe. You know, like his his post Cundy guy. Like, you're right, Griffin. It does not. It, it, it's sort of washed out. and It's flat. It's I, it's it yeah, looks it's kind of, flat to it's, me. It's amazing what a difference that makes in you feeling like you're watching a Carpenter film. If his aesthetic isn't there you're automatically missing part of what you love about his work, part of what makes his work so singular and special. So, he knows where to put the camera. Like, yeah. and that's clear here. Like, that's the thing where I did not, I was sort of like, okay, this is, you know, he's setting up shots nicely. The compositions are fine. 
it's never an over edited or busy. I was really expecting like, uh, fuck, what's that movie where uh, the torture porny movie directed by a somewhat famous director? Uh, oh, Captivity. Captivity. Like this thing where it's like, oh my Roland God. Roland Joffe. Roland yeah. Joffe. It's like, oh my God, here is a, like, you know, a Palme d'Or, a Palme d'Or winning director. Yes. I mean, it was a ridiculous <laughs> Palme d'Or win, but he has one. Yeah. Uh, being like, is this what I should do? Like, you know, like just kind of being like, uh, like, you know, the generation has shifted. I guess I'll try and copy it. And the award to its credit, I don't think it's pulling any of that sort of hacky stuff, but it does. Yeah. A little lifeless. I, I, yeah, I, I yeah. think that is uh, uh, totally fair and uh, spot on. I mean, not to just like front load opinions here, but the thing for me is uh, this movie like is functional. There is nothing disastrous about it, but it doesn't really grab me. And I don't really feel a passion in it. We're even in. The other Carpenter movies that I don't think are successful, which I, I, you know, at least enjoy almost all of them. I feel like there are Pretty only much. two that I was like a little more muted on. Even the ones that I think are kind of broken objects, I find fun or engaging in some way or another. This feels like if I saw this at like a horror film festival and you told me it was a first time director, I'd be like, this person might be able to make a really great movie someday. Yep. This is a pretty decent calling card first film in terms of what you're saying knows where to put the camera keeps it focused keeps it simple what have you to have it be what might end up being the final film of like the master of the genre arguably mm. is that that's what makes it depressing for me you know it's just it's a very undignified final film it's a and little it, undignified and it right it, it's just you feel like what you want to give this movie is props for promise but it's not promise. It's the end, you know, part of part of the problem. And this is a it's a very real problem with a lot of movies that are built around a twist or a, a, a secret is you spend so much of the movie being clever or tap dancing around the thing you're hiding that you don't get to actually just be the movie. There's yes. so much of this movie where they are talking around the movie. And it would be so much more interesting if he had found a visual way to show us that he was that we were playing inside somebody's head. Or I wouldn't mind if you tip your hand earlier and then just make it interesting as opposed to try to hide the secret, which doesn't pack enough of a punch to then justify never really knowing what's going on with anybody. Look, I mean, this is what made Shyamalan's entire career, right? Like, this is why Shyamalan became so indestructible that he still could get financing after, like, five flops in a row, is that The Sixth Sense was this fucking magic trick, where, as you're saying, Drew, almost every twist movie, either the movie has to tangle itself into such knots to hold off on the twist that there's nothing really going on until the reveal, or you do things that are interesting enough beforehand that the twist actually derails whatever the movie had going for it, and then feels like it undoes whatever was working. Yes. It's why it was unfair that M. Night was considered like a gimmick artist. Right. Or whatever. Like, oh, the Sixth Sense isn't good. It just has a good twist. Well, having a good twist might be enough to get your script noticed, right? It might even be enough to get your movie made. But that's not going to make a good movie. Like, delivering a twist well is hard. Our argument has always been that if, if the Sixth Sense ends with Haley Joel Osment and Tony Collette in the car. It is still a capital G great movie. I, it's one of the best scripts I've ever read on the page. It's, it's yeah. incredible. It's incredible. But it's like that's the thing that is almost impossible to pull off. Yeah. Uh, and David, you 
put I I mean we're gonna get in the fucking spoiler territory, obviously. Uh, oh, we're spoiling the ward, yeah, right, yeah. But uh, spoiler your, alert, your for the ward, your Zoom background right now is from the movie Vacancy or Identity. I'm no, sorry, it's from not the vacancy. movie Identity, 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 which is arguably a movie with ostensibly the same twist that has the opposite problem, which is I think that movie is pretty fun until the twist. And then exactly. it feels like nothing fucking matters anymore. And it's because Mangold figured out a way to, to put you in it, to put you in the way that would feel, as opposed to this weird distancing thing where you never quite know what she's feeling. But that means that once you pull the curtain, everything feels really hollow, rather than yeah. this, which feels like it's killing time for an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, that, absolutely true about the ward. Uh, the, right. The twist of the ward is there, you know, it's five girls in a mental asylum and they're being picked off, but really they're all the same. It's girl one girl with multiple who personalities. Has multiple personalities. And it's all sort of a dramatization of what's happening in her brain. The personalities right. Are right. Uh, and Jared Harris is there. You know, and we love to see him. Is it also sort of the premise of a Donald Kaufman script in adaptation, right? Is the it like, called The Three? Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah, basically. It's, like a, it's, it's, it's a, obviously, it's a classic, uh, you know, hacky Hollywood twist. It, it, like, and it turns out, like, oh, they was with the same person all along. Oh, fuck. You know, I'm just remembering I didn't finish watching it. So I missed this. <laughs> the good to know. Yeah. Yeah. The I, yeah it turns I, out. I didn't make it to the all, end. But okay. It's all okay. one girl. Cool. Yeah. Alice. Cool, cool. Played good by Nika Borum. Right. The girl that they think has gone missing. Yeah. And then they think is the killer. You know, they think it's uh, the, the, the corpse that's stalking them. But actually, it's just the girl that they are. And like the killer is a physical manifestation of the treatment trying to knock the personalities out one by one. I mean, it's also interesting because what this movie plays at Toronto in 2010 mm -hmm. and then gets Which is where I saw it. Very limited release uh, uh, seven, eight months later, whatever. Uh, it takes a while. Uh, yeah, to, barely a year. Release. Right. Yeah. Um, but this this screens in 2010, the same year as Shutter Island, which is the other movie that this is sort of combined with. Right. Where it's like, Malicious, scary hospital, villainous staff. No, actually, they're trying their hardest to save you. Experimental, radical treatment. They've been playing along with your game, you know? And man, that is a movie that is just drenched in style, where the whole thing is about the way it looks and feels and the, the getting lost in the head. It's the other thing that makes this movie look bad. Yes. But, but this is a movie that... It, Shutter Island, obviously, Scorsese has one of the biggest movie stars in the world and a hundred million dollars and all that sort of shit. But like, it's such a good evocation of like the kind of Val Luton movie he's riffing on. Mm -hmm. And yes. here Carpenter yes. is not able to muster that same sense of style, which a lot of it is just we're saying it's it's flat. It's cheap. It's like I, I also I mean, I've ragged on her before as an actress and I don't want to be mean about her, especially because she's this like bizarre figure outside of like her acting but i don't like amber heard i don't I, either with a more compelling lead maybe i'm a little more interested she, in the mystery she has like never really worked for me and she is the human equivalent of cuties and that you're not you cannot talk about her without the internet going insane on you if you're gonna cast her cast her in something like scarface in the michelle pfeiffer role where she's yeah, yeah that kind of a person where there's ways to cast her where you can cast that energy and cast, but her as the sympathetic figure who's supposed to be pulling us through the, I think Lindsay Fonseca would have been a better choice for the oh, central this is, character. This is my, than, I like, yeah. 
every other girl. I like everyone else in this movie. I love Danielle Panabaker. I'm a huge yeah, fan Panabaker's of Yeah, Panabaker's great. Yeah, really good. Mamie Gummer, obviously, very talented. Like uh, Not her yeah, best I performance, but that more no. has to do with, I think, how this character's written. She must be interested in this. Mr. Robot, she certainly has oh, uh, yeah. played in this, this uh, sandbox a few times, this kind of thing, so... Right. Uh, Lindsay Fonseca, who I definitely like. She's, of course, on the couch in How I Met Your Mother. I grew sort of obsessed with that one shot they had of the two kids. That they had the to reuse over your mother Because Lindsay Fonseca then, like, grew up. And I was like, but still, sometimes you see, like, whatever, you know, 17-year-old Lindsay Fonseca on the couch or however old she's supposed to be. Is that, was that, let's say, the cushiest job in the history of television? Where they, like... <laughs> They have to get paid, right? Every time. Right. It was her uh, and David Henry. Is that who the other? Yes, right. That's right. And they like right. shoot stuff proprietarily for, I think, seasons one and two. And then they were like, oh, this show's a hit and they're getting older. We just need to get a bunch of B-roll and we'll reuse it. And they reuse it for what? Nine seasons? Every episode? Yes. Well, not every episode. They would. But but no, no, you're forgetting. Right. Then they, they're like, OK, we're we're going to have to stop using these kids as they're growing up. Let's shoot the conversation right. in the finale now. Right. Let's do it now. This this show is probably going to end soon. Like, you know, or God knows. And then the show runs for. So, and that's why the show has an ending that makes people so angry because it's the end they planned corner. years yeah. before. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, it's still I said, think about it all the time. It's incredible. The two of them just got a check for every single episode. I assume when when it was made, when it aired and then residuals. I mean, I did because I did my little tiny thing on on Supergirl a couple seasons ago, whatever mm -hmm. that was, 15 mm -hmm. years ago. And they wanted to do a different scene in the same bar without having to go there as like an establishing shot. So they reused a shot that I was like vaguely in the background of <laughs> two seasons mm -hmm. later. And I got paid like the same amount. Hell yeah. They had to there reach out and go like, You're do we have apps. your clearance to reuse this footage? And I looked the footage. It's like. I'm out of focus in the back because they had paid me guest star money or whatever. So she just must have gotten like paid a proper episode salary for every single episode. And then they all go into syndication and streaming. Or what whatever. a gig. I know. Unbelievable. But what 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 did she get paid for the word, though? Uh, I, I, I Nothing. I mean, what the budget <laughs> I have to assume. <laughs> I mean, what they say the budget of this movie is 10. Mm. But I, I suppose that's question. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, 10 is not a lot, I guess. You can you can spend $10 million. Drew, I have to imagine you were a person who saw uh, uh, All the Boys Love Mandy Lane in that movie's weird seven years between being like a festival sensation and getting quietly released and never talked about again. Yeah. Because that was uh, at TIFF in 06 and released in 2013, right? And that's yeah. the thing that like puts Amber Heard on the map. And I have to imagine is the main reason she's cast in this because that sort of presented her as maybe being a new Scream Queen. It might that might be the longest between something doing its festival debut and coming out in theaters commercially. Like that's got to be one of the big gaps. I mean, Margaret is seven years, but it never played a festival. But there's seven years between production and release. Unreal. But yeah, no, this, which is insane. This, yeah. Anyway. All the boys love Mandy Lane. I just think it's an interesting counterpoint to this just because that was sort of seen as like, here's a throwbacky thing. You got a filmmaker who's moving away from the current trends of torture porn and overly slick remakes and doing something more like the 80s, 70s, like genre tours. I always thought I, I thought all the boys love Mandy Lane was a decent little style exercise. And I think that she is visually striking in it. 
and they use in that movie, they pretty much use Amber as a object, as an image rather uh-huh. than as yep. a performance. And right. I, I think that's that's one of the reasons that it was such a great calling card for her. I think performance wise, she is uh, difficult to warm up to. I'll yes. put it that way. Um, and there's just some actors who are like that centrally, like you don't cast them as the center of something because of that. And it's it's weird in this movie to to be asked to sympathize with her. She doesn't give you much interiority. She doesn't give you access to anything inside her. She's very guarded. I agree. And, so, and then, of course, the twist is that she's not really a person. And you're like, yeah, OK, so you can kind of get away with it. But it does make it a tough movie to care about for most of the running time. It's just really hard to figure out who you're holding on to. And, yeah. you know, and it's like when you watch the um, the Star Trek into darkness and they do everything they can not to say the character's name. Mm. And you're like, just just say the character's just name. Say Ten it. minutes right. into the movie, just say it and then just have a movie happen instead of all of this shoe leather that is that you ideally movies work the second time as well as the first time. Yes. And I feel like this is a movie that only works one time. There's very little rewatch value because. When you go back and watch it, it's not like then that pays off and you're watching all the behavior of the girls and you go, oh, wow, look at all the cool ways he's showing us that they are all one person. There's none of that. There's no synchronicity in performances. There's nothing that ties them together. I mean, this is once again why Sixth Sense made over $300 million is everyone walked out of it and went, is there any way that works? And then you watch it a second time and the fact that it works the second time. You know, how is he not giving it away? How is he not telegraph? But he doesn't. And but it lines fair. up. It checks out yeah. the math. Yeah, right. It's why the usual suspects works. Like there are lots of good twist movies that play great on rewatch where you're like, let me now see how everyone's behaving. Exactly. With knowing what I know. And it'll be totally interesting. But I do think that Amber's casting is very much a reaction to her being an it girl. And and I think that that's kind of that moment where he's she's as important to the bankroll to to this movie getting financed as he was because her name and the young cast is that's what 90s horror and early 2000s horror looks like and i think he is at this point kind of surrendering to well i guess this is what horror is whereas i think the majority of john's career john would just say i don't know what anybody else thinks this is what a horror film is to me right Big Trouble in Little China. He's not looking around and taking everybody else's temperature before he goes, all right, I guess we're all making Big Trouble in Little China this year. No, he's the only one on the planet making a movie like that at that point. And I I really wish the ward did not feel so reactive, feel just like, like, I think I'm in, I think I'm a filmmaker again. What are people making right now? And and that's what this is. Yeah. I mean, the reason I'm bringing the all the the boys love Mandy Lane thing into this even is it's like it is just odd her status removing the incredibly fucking complicated persona around her today right but like in this moment she is an it girl and i think is seen not exclusively but perhaps even more of an it girl in the genre space despite the fact that her calling card movie has not come out it's not despite it's because of because then that movie became People were like, you know, there's this horror movie that fucking looks like a Malick movie and it's so slick and it's and and, and it's not even out. It right. played at a fest and it, and it becomes this kind of like cool mystery movie. And the posters and the production stills come out. And you're like, ooh, she looks this looks grip and look at her very blonde in the middle of it all. But it's like everyone is like taking out advance loans on her fame. hundred percent that never cash out. It's not even like the 
we're going to put uh, uh, fucking uh, Sam Worthington and three other movies because James Cameron's picked him. And we know that's going to like eventually land. Uh, it, it's just odd that like Mandy Lane comes out three or four years after this. Three years after comes out radius, you know, dumped it. Um, and yeah, made like 400 grand. Uh, and this movie, of course, was basically not released in America. Yeah. Which is crazy. Like, I think it got a slightly bigger release overseas, but, uh, you know, it debuted on like, uh, I'm going to find it here, like 11 screens and there's only one week of box office data for it. Like, Ouch. it just, you know, doesn't really exist. You can't rent this movie on iTunes. Yeah, you can only rent it on YouTube. That is the only platform. It's like... It, there's certainly not I don't think there's a physical uh, release of it right is there there was it might be out of print there was a blu-ray uh-huh. okay that's okay, what okay. that's one of the real dangers of tax shelter theater whenever you're yes. working yeah, in is, that, that is. sphere is stuff just vanishes like is if you're not making it for a company that has some sort of foundation it could very easily vanish into somebody's tax settlement and just you don't see it again a- absolutely it's a weird movie that you feel like could you know, just as soon tomorrow disappear and be like uh, unwatchable. Um, I mean, it's also like the Blu-ray was released by a company called Arc Entertainment that seems to have gone out of business eight years ago. Oh my I, God. It's maybe not still in print, but it, there are still copies in circulation. Uh, yeah. And it's like only like this might be a movie where just no one even knows where the rights are anymore. Film Nation produced it also. And this was in like the first year of Film Nation. That is like not that glamorous. Uh, let me just pull this up because this list was kind of blowing my mind. Give me one second here. Well, where did you guys see Masters? Because I'm always curious where that pops up. It it moves. It never lands anywhere for very long. I just rented it on iTunes. Oh, OK, good. Yeah, that's where I found it. Yeah. Both seasons are currently streaming on Voodoo. You can okay. watch I, it. I, I don't fuck with Voodoo. Yeah. Tubi might have them. Right I watched now. it on Tubi. Okay. There you go, Tubi. All right, I got I got a lot of Car Shield commercials. <laughs> Ric Flair is in one, and there he looks go. bad. It's really oh no, no, it's rough. <laughs> um, F- Film Nation has now become like this major major independent film production company, and at, at the beginning of the 2010s, was also attempting to be a distributor, uh, which they eventually got out of the game doing. Uh, and has had like a lot of success making both big movies and a lot of big Oscar movies. But like they start in 2009. Their first two films are The Joneses with Demi Moore, David Duchovny and Amber Heard, which doesn't exist. Uh-huh. And they do The Road, which obviously is this highly anticipated movie that kind of just disappears. Saw so all of those at Toronto. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. And then the following year at Toronto, they have three movies premiere. Uh, they have uh, Adam Green's Frozen premieres that year at Sundance, which is a horror movie that unfortunately shares the title with a Disney movie that will fuck up its SEO for the rest of time. But, you know, at Adam Green, you know, big culty par guy. Yes, but but uh, that movie it will never, ever be picked. Yeah, on so, tri- yeah no, yeah. I understand. Get the joke yeah, I'm making, yeah, whatever. But, but they do an Australian romantic comedy called I Love You Too. And then they have three movies go to Toronto that year. One is Ceremony, the Max Winkler movie. Yeah. Kind of doesn't exist. Uh, with, uh, well, it's the... Um, Michael Nirano, uh, Uma Thurman. Right. He, the May-December-y kind of movie. Exactly. 
Uh, one of them is The Ward, which plays at Toronto. People are excited. Carpenter's back, kind of lands with a thud, slowly escapes into 11 theaters months later, right? Uh, the third movie they have at Toronto is The King's Speech. $100 million world uh, domestic, wins Best Picture. They're set. Like, from then on out, they're like a legitimate production company. And they make other genre films, but it's like, it almost feels like there's this like turn of like, this is the last moment they would have made this, you know? Yes. It's, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, they don't. They make mud. They make Magic Mike. They I make, guess they, uh, right. They still the Bling make Ring, a... Nebraska. Um, yeah. Uh, Pain and Glory. No, I mean, no, they did they the last three almost of our movies. Right. Big Sick. Uh, you know, um, Imitation Game. Blah, blah, blah. You know, they're, they're a big yes. deal. It's, I mean, I don't know what puzzle we're trying to solve here exactly, but it's just sort of like, could Carpenter make another movie? Yes, of course he could. Like, I think there's a lot of people who would open that door for him if he wanted to, but it's a matter of want and it's a matter of project. And I don't know if there's a project he wants to do, right? Like, there's just, I don't know if there's anything you can lure him back. You would, it would have to be, yeah, just undeniable for him at this point. It would have to be something that I, I think... You'd have to have some irresistible element. Either you'd have to bait it with Cody gets to do the score or you get like there'd have to be some other piece of the puzzle that would make John go. All right, fine. I'll do that so that this can happen. Like, that's the thing. Two it's, words. It, ben Hosley. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Night eggs. Producer Ben. There you go. Poet laureate. <laughs> Fuck. What a guy. Master. What a guy. I got three words for you. Not <laughs> Professor Crispy. Here, here's a genuine question for you, Drew. Yes, sir. Do you think Kirk could lure him back? I do. I do in a heartbeat. And like if Kirk came to him me. and was like, this is the Elder Statesman movie I want to make. I want to do it with you, buddy, please. This is like, you know. That was the that was that was what we kept trying to use the the hook for the Western. We kept right. saying, look, a Western with you and Kurt is pretty much the dream. And I think if Kurt had the script, if Kurt had something that he developed that he was really passionate about, but here's the thing about Kurt. And this is what unfortunately shut us down when we were trying to pitch John on that. He goes, well, that's great. I, I'd love to, but you better have your paycheck ready before you even talk to Kurt. Kurt's offer only. You don't even pick up the phone unless you got an offer ready to make. Yeah. So there's no development with Kurt. You don't develop sure. things with him. He's you have a project. You have a paycheck ready. You call him. He'll say yes or no. But there's no. So you can't you can't just put both of them on the hook and then build it from there. And I think that's the only way that happens at this point. Right. Like in my in my mind's eye, it happens if like Kurt Russell finds a book that he loves. Right. And goes to him. You know, like something like that. Like, I feel like it has to be Kurt being the one. Or Wyatt gets a script to him. Something uh, yeah, like, you know, I yeah. don't know. You know, like something. Let's be in this together. Right. See, and there's that family hook. I'm sure if Wyatt Russell said, I have a thing I want to do with my dad. And right. would you, I bet in a heartbeat, John would jump on. Because it's, it's Cody be and like, John and Wyatt Cody and to do it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then that sells itself. That's one of those packages where you're like, oh, my God, there's 400 PR pieces you can do before you even write about the movie. But at the same, I admire Carpenter's being like, fuck you. You, you, you don't like that I went out of the ward. So what? Watch one of my, you know, 15 great movies. If you don't like the ward, like whatever. Who cares? I'm going to make music. 
By the way, which film do you guys think is the only film that he would never discuss with us? No matter what we tried, no matter how we tried to talk to him about it, just blanket. Nope. No. Fellas. Fellas. No. Memoirs? Memoirs. Memoirs. Nothing. Zero. A vault. It's a closed safe in his heart. It's the Chevy thing. It has to be. Right? That's the expectation. Yeah. 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 Uh, there's there's no getting around. Like he will tell stories about anybody, about anything, any film. He is an open book once you've started working with him. Except that where it was just nope. No, fellas. No, not going to do it. No. Those were the I two things it. when we were DMing about which episode you were going to do that you said to me were uh, memoirs is the one movie he will not talk about under any circumstances. And the ward is the only one that I don't believe was really a passion project for him. You were saying like, you know, people ding him for other movies, but I, I truly believe he really, really deeply cared about every other thing he did. Yeah. And this is I, the one I that know he did. Right. That feels more like a strategic calculation of like, this might be a movie that's easy enough to pull off. Yeah. And I and I do think it was more or less. Sure. One more time. Let's see what's right. like right now. And I, I think it was more t- taking the temperature. That's another reason I think he wasn't terribly invested in the, the screenplay and the development of it is he was just taking a temperature of filmmaking. What's it yeah. like right now? Yeah. Yeah. And I think if it had gone well, we may have gotten a couple of other John films um, and maybe some stuff that would have been a little bit different. Like, I know his heart is he, it, it's broader than we've given him credit for. And I do think if he was going to do it again, it would have to be something that he hadn't done in the past. That wouldn't just be a repeat. So, yeah, it, it's I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, we were talking about this in our Ghost of Mars episode a lot, too. But it's like on one hand, it's a bummer if this is his final film ever on the other hand i greatly prefer that he didn't make three more the wards after this you know and there's certainly a filmmakers we've covered who like don't know when to sort of get out when the getting's good i mean it's it's or they're just they just keep being like well maybe this will be a good final one and then it's like "Eh, well no not really it's the thing that tarantino is obsessed with trying to get ahead of right like his whole insane 10 movies and i'm out thing is him just being like i have to leave stuff on the table rather than overstaying my welcome by one movie. I think a lot of filmmakers have that that question about when to stop. You know, the Coens quit. There was a period where they quit. Yeah. They were done. And it was because To the White Sea failed and fell apart. And yeah. they didn't get to make that film. And then their mom had a stroke. And it was really, it was that close. It was like one week To the White Sea fell apart permanently. And then a week or two weeks later, their mom had a stroke. And they just went, yeah, life's too short. Never mind. And they were just script doctors for a few years. And it yeah. was really, they got dragged back in. And I think then figured out, oh, I think we're not done. And there's gas left in the tank. But And No Country was the drag. That's the timeline we're talking about here. It was intolerable. And Lady Killers were the ones that, yeah, where they, where they were dragged back in. They worked on the scripts. They weren't really going to direct either of those. Right. That was the same time they wrote the Gambit script. And they were just kind of writers. They, they really had quit. And I, I, it's weird how often this business will drive great filmmakers just to quit because of the business. Wait, you're saying, Drew, it's almost like there's something that actually breaks people if they work long enough in this horrible, corrupt machinery? I, I know. It's, it's hard to believe, Griffin, because I know you've had nothing but great experiences. I love it. And I really I've feel loved and supported by the whole industry. Physically or mentally harmed. Uh, David, what were you going to say? I to the white sea was one of my early like when I was a little teenager reading about movie making those projects where I would like I knew that was coming like mm-hmm. I knew that was what they wanted to do 
And I was like, oh, I can't wait for it. I'd, 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 I'd love to make a list like that. Like, you know, the sort of the 10, yeah. you know, auteur projects that everyone knew were sort of on the table that never came to fruition. Like, what if Joel Cohen tomorrow is like, fuck you, I'm making to the White Sea. Well, Apple's I mean, giving me $120 million. Megalopolis. Board. Megalopolis. Like, That's that the was thing. One of Francis Ford Coppola was like, I'm going to do like a Kickstarter or, or sell my winery or whatever. I'm old. <laughs> I might as well do it. Right. Like, fuck it. I, God bless him, man. Yeah. If if he goes out swinging like that, I'm gonna. I that re that reframes Coppola for me. I, as much as I've always loved the Maverick spirit of him, I did feel like he had just gotten to the point where he really wasn't going to ever put that last big one together. And it feels like he realized, nope, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna yeah. put it all on the table. I'm gonna. I don't care because I can't keep anything. The vineyard doesn't matter to me once I'm gone. But Megalopolis will exist. And man. Whatever it is, I'm excited. I'm curious. I want to see it. Same here. And it's also fascinating how immediately that announcement reframed him spending the last eight years re-editing like half of his movies. Sure. Where you're like, he's really winding up for like, I'm trying to put a bow on my career. What are the things I'd like to take one last crack at in my past? And then now with all of those settled, I'm ready for the final statement. And he's one of the few guys where... Where those reassessments actually matter. The yeah. Cotton Club is a significantly better movie. It's now. pretty fucking it's, wild. Yeah. It's pretty crazy how different it is. I so, haven't watched the Godfather one yet, but the the Cotton Club one is that one's a little less drastic, but it's still interesting. Yeah. That you know what he changed. But clearly, like he is he's still engaged in thinking and passionate. And I I want that. I want I love seeing somebody manage to figure out how to keep that flame lit at that point. Yeah, I mean, there's this quote that's both touching and a little bit sad that JJ and Nick, our researchers, pulled up here. And it's talking about the period you were saying of, of when he just really was truly retired and feeling burnt out, had no stories left in him, whatever. And he said, uh, I guess this is when they were promoting this movie finally coming out. I thought I'd come back if I fell in love. It's like when you break up with your wife or girlfriend, it's just tragedy. And I broke up with cinema for a little while, but she came back and I got back with her and it's all good now. Like he did have that attitude, I think, of just like, and I'm certainly someone who functions this way where like if I feel defeated by something, it's really hard to convince me to take another crack at it, you know, uh, in, in any arena, even bad slices of pizza or whatever. Dude, I've, I get it. It's I, I, when I left HitFix, I took several years where I just I didn't want to do anything online. And I felt like I just gotten my ribs kicked in. Yeah. And it took me a while to figure out, like, even what I wanted to write again. Um, I the, the one thing that I observed about him on set is he definitely the big picture stuff gets to him. The days being lost, the money being cut, things like that. But moment to moment, once he's actually doing it. He's one of the happiest filmmakers I've ever seen. Like when he's chugging along, shooting a scene, he is super. When we were shooting in Cigarette Burns, the uh, scene with Udo Kier in the projection booth. <laughs> yeah. One of, the, yeah. one of the wildest things I've ever seen. <laughs> Best part. Should we spoil it? I mean, do people want to? I, I don't know. No, no, let's just say, let's just say the imagery is you know, Udo Kier has uh, cut open his stomach, taken out his intestines, and spooled them into a projector. And is going to die his projecting guts. his guts onto a screen. Yeah, which is uh, which is batshit crazy. And that's one of those moments that I know when I pitched it to uh, to Rebecca in the room, she started laughing and she's like, they're not going to let us do that. Cut to us on a film set. 
Yeah. Udo Kier is standing at a film projector, pushing his intestines into it. And John Carpenter standing behind us, cackling the entire time. Yeah. Udo, make it grosser. And just right. watching Udo ham it up and watching John laugh his face off. I was like, I, if I get nothing else out of this, this moment is one of the craziest things that I will ever experience. And he was giddy. He was having fun. To me, that's that was the big gift of that whole thing. Um, the same thing on the second one. Um, there's a horrible sequence in the second one in pro-life where um, Ron Perlman gives a man an abortion. There's really no other way to describe it. Yeah, that actually might be the single most demented thing I've ever seen on a screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. And the and my favorite conversation was the day we were going to shoot that and the actor playing the doctor. We had walked off the soundstage and we as we walked back on, we walked past him standing with John. And all I heard is, so I'm just let me be clear. You're not going to see my balls. And I fell apart laughing. I was like, oh, my God, what did we write? <laughs> we're, we're giving this poor man fits. Um, but again, just cackling like he was yeah. having so much fun that day knowing, oh, this is cra- I'm great. This is cra- you guys are crazy. This is ridiculous. Let's have fun. Right. You'd love the show. Hate the business. And, and yeah. I mean. Yeah, the stories you were telling at the beginning, Drew, it, it, you know, you're, it sounds like he almost was like this Lance Bangs figure to you, right? And I, I think the thing I find a so touching percent. about that whole fucking dynamic and almost famous, and a lot of it is Hoffman's performance too, but is like, here's this guy who presents as being so cynical, so bitter, so jaded, right? His introduction to the movie is Rock's dead. It all sucks. Everyone's full of shit. Kid, mm-hmm. you missed it. You know, there's nothing left. You're only here for the death rattle. And he sees this kid who has like the wide eyed, infectious uh, enthusiasm for the thing that he once had before it was like, you know, sort of weaponized against him and, and broke his heart. And he cannot fucking turn that down. Right. And he's trying to big time him. I don't have time to sit in the diner with a kid. I got places to be this and that. But it's like by the end of the movie, he's staying up until three o'clock in the morning talking to this kid in the phone, admitting I'm uncool, you know, that incredible scene. And it's like for how much he presents as this forward grump, I don't think Carpenter was taking you under that wing, letting you sit next to him on the set of Starman, letting you in on everything just out of some sense of, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, sympathy, you know, or generosity. I do think for him, it, it, it probably felt a little restorative to watch someone who had a completely pure appreciation for this process was reminding him of what he loved about it and was completely unfazed by the shit that he felt encumbered with every day, you know? Well, and the the crazy thing is that experience is one of the reasons that even at 51 and even as crushed by certain experiences I've been, I find it very hard to be cynical. I find it really hard to be cynical about this business because I do I, I did get to live that story. The circus came to town and I followed the circus back to where it came from and I got to actually be part of it. And, you know, it it the kindness and the interest he showed was absolutely a real recognition of, oh, my God, this little mutant has the bug right. so deeply inside of him and cannot help himself. And. Yeah. And just to to have somebody explain what a physical effect was or to introduce me to the and to show me how the spheroids worked and how they were going to get the hand to light up or to stand me where I could see the explosion just so that the rest of my life, like I would have that foundation of how filmmaking worked. He knew that if he never ran into me again, fine. But he had given me enough basic tools to understand the nuts and bolts of filmmaking that day. 
Um, that's an incredible gift, man. And not the act of somebody who is cynical or doesn't love what they do. That is somebody who clearly, deeply remembers why he loves what he does. Yeah, and I think also probably wants other people in this industry who are in it for the right reasons as well, who actually give a shit. I think that's why he likes Mick so much. I think he responds to Mick's lack of sentences. Mick, Mick Garris is Mr. Rogers with long hair. Um, he is the single nicest human being I have ever met in my life, like unrelentingly sunshiny and nice and loves horror and writes crazy dark horror, but cannot help himself is just that person. And I think it's one of the reasons that he has been that linchpin for all these guys who feel burnt out by the business because Mick loves it so much. And when he brings them together, he reminds them and he rekindles that in them. And those dinners were designed to make sure that those guys didn't didn't only remember the bad stuff. And I think they spur each other on. I think it's a lot of fun when they get around each other, It, you know, and then they can all make fun of John Landis. So it's the better, the better. kind. Yeah. Well, fuck John Landis. Uh, the better kind of cynic, um, uh, you know, like it's like there's the one cynic who just wants like the other cynics around him so they can all be like, yeah, you know, yeah, it's all bad. Right. And then there's the one who, right. Who, who wants to bounce off, maybe be the darker, you know, darker mind or whatever with, but yeah, who, who likes to hear the other side or I don't know, whatever. Like, yeah, John, he sounds like a mensch yeah. carpenter. You what know a what's cool a, guy. A, a, video a weird thing about this movie, uh, just to circle back to this thing that we're ostensibly talking about today, but all this discussion is important and relevant. Uh, so in, in the research here, it says that, um, Carpenter was maybe not solely, but uh, involved in the decision to switch it to the 60s because it was written as present day. Right. And this is a script he did not write. He did not develop that. He, right. It's the Rasmussen brothers and right. they, they expect it and it was just there. Yeah. It's offered to him, as you said, one location. Simple. It makes more sense that she would just be locked away. That like was the thing. The past, it was the right? pragmatic right. decision of the sort of involuntary commitment. Uh, but I, then it also sort of, you know, it becomes um, brethren with a lot of sort of psych ward thrillers of the 50s and 60s and this sort of like mode that we're familiar with. Yeah, very much. That's very much a moment. I love the, you know, Fuller's film, uh, Shot Corridor is like yes. one of the great ones of that era. I think there was asylums in general were seen as kind of a. They were they had a very different place in our culture in the 50s and 60s, and we were just starting to talk about them a little bit. So they weren't quite the secret shame anymore, but it was mm -hmm. still, I think, a very fresh, a horrifying idea. The notion of being put away and having your agency removed. I think also it's I'm surprised more horror directors don't just set everything in the 60s and 70s at this point to get around cell phones. And yeah, get, you got to get around yeah. all the things that rob horror films of their tension at this yeah. point. No, instead it should be that there's an app that locks your doors. Uh -huh. ah, Ghostface <laughs> is coming for you because he's got an app. Ghostface. He hacked into your is app. Bluetooth enabled. Mm -hmm. No, it, it is just it places it in a weird zone, though, because he's not a filmmaker who is in any way interested in pastiche. Right. So he's not going to take this and push this into like a fuller homage and go for that sort of heightened stylization. But putting it in the 60s does make it feel more stylized, right? Uh, but he's also not doing the modern day version of this film that is, as you said, really trying to adapt to what the trends are of the 2010s in horror. 
I'm just glad it's not like a Korean horror ripoff because I think yeah. so many people, if they had made this in that year, would have done the the wet, yes, black hair in front of the face, and it, that would have been the driving green aesthetic. filter. Yeah, he's clearly at least still trying to just tell a classic ghost story his way. Like it's not him necessarily aping anybody else at the moment. No, no, it's just it's it's in a it's in an odd zone. It's in a very odd zone. Yeah, I mean, and we talk. It's like. I think all the other actresses are compelling, but by the very design of the screenplay, they all uh, are incredibly uh, one note as characters. Like everyone's got their their one Spice Girl. Like they they are less emotionally detailed than the literal emotions in Inside Out, who somehow have a wider range of personality. Despite oh, you know what? What did you know? Sydney Sweeney is playing young Alice. I I did. Yes. And now she's like a new scream queen, kind of, you know, kind of. She's in yeah. that one movie. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's a thing now. That's yeah. all. Jared Harris, I feel like also, I mean, I, I fucking love Jared Harris. Love Jared Who Harris. Who doesn't love him? What a guy. One of my absolute favorite guys. And I think the scene he does, he kind of nails is the reveal to her, right? The Ben Kingsley, let me explain to you what we've done for you. Here's the sympathy you didn't understand I had scene. But but is a little damning of this movie that up until that point, I, I'm not even getting excited in the Jared Harris scenes. You know, like every time he pops up, I'm like, yes, fuck a Jared Harris scene. Yeah, they don't give him much to do. That's the that's the real shame of it. Yeah. I, and I'm really surprised because I do think John is while I would not use the word feminist for John. I think John has always done fairly well by the women in his films. I think he mm-hmm. has a better sense, especially. You know, in the Deborah Hill days, I think he learned that you get a lot of value out of these characters, that it, that not marginalizing the women makes his movies interesting. And I think he has, you know, he's got his manly films, certainly. But I think when he centers women, he's done a, a fairly decent job of it. I think this film is is disappointing on that front because this is ostensibly a very female driven movie. And yeah, if you're sure. going to do this five faces of Eve, five manifestations of one woman that would seem like real meat for him. I don't even feel like that opportunity necessarily got taken. And that's that's confusing. It seems like that would be meat he'd be he'd pick up on thematically. Well, that's that's the other thing is I think watching all these movies, the thing he's so good at is making characters in his genre films, actual believable behavioral people who are interesting to watch before the crazy things happen to them or despite the crazy world they're placed into or whatever. And this is the one movie where like you're watching and you're like, there has to be some twist to why all these characters are uninteresting, which, which at the end of the day does not serve you. It doesn't serve you if it's not compelling to watch as much as the other actresses are trying their hardest. Yeah. You know, they, they name Alice early on and they're like, yeah, there was another patient. And you're like, okay, so the answer isn't going to be that it's her because you just gave me the answer. So what's the answer? Like, you know, right. It's a lot of clock watching. Look, we don't have to talk about the ward anymore. We don't have to. <laughs> we don't. I mean, you're right. It is America. We don't have to. We can do whatever we want. I don't think there's another thing I we we need to. I mean, the kills are all right. That's the uh, you know yeah the, the 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 stab to the eye, the electroshock kill. Like you know, but you they're know, not like insane, but they're 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 well executed. I kills. don't want to bag on this movie too hard, but I am so sensitive to eye shit. I think I pretty fucking high tolerance for like screen violence but whenever eyes are threatened i lose my fucking shit it's like Mm. my big trigger 
And this movie has a direct shot of like a needle being stabbed through someone's eye and I didn't flinch. And it, it was that feeling of like, huh, that didn't even get to me. Like, I think there's That's a little like, yeah, right. There's a little like macabre fun to some of the gore in this. But I'm just like, if John Carpenter can make me terrified of a car, although that's not a good example because I'm already terrified of cars. They're the scariest things <laughs> on the planet. But like John Carpenter shooting someone getting stabbed directly in the eye and failing to get anything out of me. I, I've gotten freaked out by eye shit and comedies, you know? I do know. I agree with what you're saying. Nothing in this movie, you know, made me flinch or twitch or anything like that. Definitely not. Like I, at the, the best, at most I was having fun yeah. watching it, but I was certainly not feeling very, uh, my heart race or anything like that. I was just kind of like, eh, okay, what's next? You know, it's not a very good movie. You no, know, it's, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not. It's not a catastrophe. It's not offensive, but it's not very good. Here's a lateral line of questioning, Drew. Sure. Uh, because you, you guys, uh, you and Rebecca Swan pitched cigarette burns first and then get Carpenter interested. There's a lot of overlap for me in thematically between uh, cigarette burns and uh, Mouth of Madness. Mm-hmm. How consciously were you guys sort of influenced by that? I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you and Rebecca, obviously, like Carpenter is going to hang over anything. The two of you write sure. in terms of him being a big influence. And uh, I, I'm sure like a point of kinship between the two of you. Sure. Um, I, I definitely think uh, cursed works of art in general, like you can't you can't not know in the mouth of madness. Yeah. Uh, as as an example of that. Ninth Gate is an example of that. There's and there's older stuff that that deals with that. Um, I had actually not read the book Flickr yet when we wrote this. And then since I've read Flickr, which if you guys have not read it, I have not. Please track that novel down. It is extraordinary. It is about the secret history of movies. Oh, this sounds cool. It's a cult that has been around since the silent days and how they have since the very beginning of film been hiding things in your movies and a young filmmaker becomes drawn in and it's wonderful. It's, but I think inevitably, if you're around film long enough, you start to hear just crazy stories about collectors. You start to and you realize that people are nutty about this stuff. So for us, it happened pretty organically um, just from a number of different events. Things like we were at the uh, Fantasia Film Festival one summer and uh, one night had a long night talking uh, magic theory with Richard Stanley on a uh, patio. And we were drinking La Fin du Monde beer. Ah. Um, which is a high, high, high alcohol content beer from Montreal. And that name just cracked me up so hard. Le Fin du Monde for a beer. I'm like, yes, yeah. the end of the world. I'm drinking the end of the world tonight. And so like that ends up in there. And the conversation we're having r- with Richard about how filmmakers are essentially magicians and every cut that you do is a, a, a magic trick. Um, all of that stuff starts to build in. We had been talking about a Joe Dante, who is a big print collector. He collects a lot of nitrate prints. Yeah. Um, every time they do the film noir festival uh, here at the Egyptian, uh, they're mostly Dante's prints or Landis's prints. And they share this film vault underneath Hollywood. Fuck John Landis. Um, and uh, <laughs> but um, so talking to Dante, he told us a crazy story about um, some guy had a print that he'd been looking for for like 15 years. And when he went to go get the print from the guy, the guy was like, yeah, here's the address. Dante takes this cab to the middle of the outback, essentially. And there's just a shack. 
And he sat there for about 10 minutes and was like, I don't need the film that badly. It's okay. Let's just go back. <laughs> wow. and just left. Just like, no, nah, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to the shack. It's okay. It's fine. And I, so all that stuff was kind of bouncing around in there. And then once John came on, um, it became a matter of trying to not overlap on purpose, like trying to make sure that we weren't writing Bellinger as Sutter Kane, that we weren't right. leaning on what he'd already done because we did want it to kind of stand on its own and, and have its own identity. And I think that was, we were more conscious of it than he was. I think he doesn't mind those thematic echoes and things. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, for those who haven't watched it, and you should, because it's available on, on Tubi and Vudu and iTunes and the places we listed, and it's a real fun uh, hour of uh, of of Carpenter. Uh, it's it's about a cash trap uh, film programmer who is uh, hired to find this legendary lost film that seems cursed, that drives people crazy, that has some inherent evil to it, that has long been thought completely lost. But there is uh, evidence, perhaps, that it, it has to exist out there somewhere. I think also part of it was just going to film festivals. And I, I, there was a movie that I saw at one of the Fantastic Fests. And before the movie, I remember Tim League came out to introduce it and brought with him. He invited several people to come up to the front of the theater. And he gave us a shot of tequila, gave us the salt, gave us the lemon wedge. And he said, what I want you to do is snort the salt squeeze the lemon in your eye and then throw the tequila on the ground. That's a Serbian film. Buckle up. And so <laughs> I think he set the stage properly. And sure. after that movie, it was, I, I had a conversation with somebody where it was like, what is it about us as film fans? Why is it? If somebody says I have the most horrifying, amoral nightmare of a movie, it will end your sanity. And you're like, great. When can I see it? And where is it playing? And what is it about film fans that makes us want to take that challenge when we're told there's a movie that's so crazy, horrible and on the bleeding edge of extreme and and people will, man, people will go see anything if they're told it's crazy. There, or there's a certain type of film fan who's chasing. Yes, like the, it's, it's like the people who eat. The like, you know, insane ghost peppers that have been bred just to destroy you. And they're like, yeah, pretty good. You know, but like their palates are so like devastated that they're like, eh, I still I want something that's really I'm going to feel like yeah. you just, you know, you're going deeper and deeper. But even look at like Salo's weird stickiness as film Twitter's perpetual favorite meme. Yep. You know, this idea of making someone watch Salo or recommending it when someone's asking for a thing to watch with their kids or like. I feel like movies, I feel like the human centipede exists simply so that when you tell somebody what human centipede is about, they've had the whole experience. They don't ever need to see the film. The moment the, the movie is fucking like, nothing. Oh, oh, horrible. The movie is probably not going to, as true with almost all these movies, not going to live up to what you've imagined. Right. Exactly. Told, like, and that oh was part God. of it as well. Was, well, you know, it would be really amazing if you actually went and saw one of those and it really did make you insane. And sure. yes, right. And you actually had to gouge your eyes. <laughs> it was or you're just like, <laughs> truly ah! evil. Like, yeah, right. Right. Because <laughs> uh, like I was talking with uh, Alex Ross Perry about The Exorcist, which I guys, I grew up in Britain. I don't know if you know this about me. I'm sorry. What? I've heard rumors. I've heard rumors on the Internet. I was I was an adolescent in Britain. Uh, and. Uh, uh, Alex was asking me about how Exorcist, the 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 easiest version to buy these days, if you want to buy a disc, is the 
the version you've never seen, the version right. with the spider, the spider walk, walk, you know, yeah. the, the, the director's cut, which in my opinion is not as good. Uh, I don't like that cut that much, but has sort of weirdly become the dominant cut, mm-hmm. right? The where like Freakins put in a few extra flashes of Pazuzu and it's, I think it's annoying, but whatever. Um, and I was recalling when that came out in Britain, that was the first time that movie had been available in Britain for like a long, long time because that movie had been banned in Britain, basically mm-hmm. taken out of circulation because it became a video nasty. And so when I was a kid, I thought The Exorcist was what? like illegal. A video nasty. You have to unpack this for Ben. You must unpack this for Ben. Ben just like uh, cartoon hearts popped up in his eyeballs. Huh? <laughs> it's a great phrase. It really is. There was a whole kind of like moral panic, Ben, in, especially in the 80s in Britain when like VHSs became, you know, widely available. Like, it, it, like people, like little old ladies in Britain were like, oh, you could just buy a movie called The Driller Killer. Like this is, you know, children <laughs> could see this. And so lots of, rel- you know, lots of truly, you know, extreme type movies got banned. But then a lot of like not like what what you consider like fairly mainstream movies kind of got sucked into that, including The Exorcist. And but when I was a kid, I didn't get that The Exorcist had been like a Titanic level hit when it came out, like that that was just like a mainstream film. I thought that was some like illegal film that if you watched it, like Satan would be in your house now or whatever. Like, that's why they banned it. They were like, this is a cursed movie. Like, Not nominated for like eight Academy Awards. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like made a billion dollars adjusted for inflation or whatever. Like, it's just funny to think about how these things stick, like you say, Griffin, like beyond what's in the movie. Like their sure. reputations just become what is important about them. Right. So I, I, th- I think I did the same thing to The Exorcist. Oh, go ahead. No, no, just like Salo is actually a good film, but I think that's why it remains sticky is because it's like one of the movies like that that you can use as a buzzword that also has inherent value, unlike something like Human Centipede. It's not just the shock, you know? Right. right no, right, I th- right. and I do think that like I certainly I saw The Exorcist too young. I was seven when I saw it wow. and I saw it theatrically a babysitter thought oh the re-release is out i will take him to see it because i would like to see it and uh and at seven i thought it was a documentary like i didn't know what was happening in the movie theater it really messed me up so that has always been on the off-limit shelf for my my kids and we just Mm. watched it during halloween and i think because i had built up the story of how much it messed me up and what it was we put it on and about 30 minutes in one of them turned to me goes oh it's a movie (laughs) (laughs) right Oh, it's a movie. Like, it's a real movie. Oh, okay. And they loved it, but they were like, we just thought we were going to turn it on and the devil was going to beat the shit out of us for two hours. (laughs) Like, that is truly what I thought The Exorcist was. Right. They they thought it was the tape from The Ring. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes, exactly. Right. It's so good. It's so good when a movie works that way. I mean, it's the best. That's what The Blair Witch Project was, you know, to so many people. It's Uh, that's a hard phenomenon to like explain to people is just like you have to understand there were like three weeks where people thought maybe it was real. And it's just like that's not that's not possible today. You know, no, it can't be replicated. Yeah, I do wish speaking to this point that we had not shown the movie in cigarette burns. It is one of the few things that I think we we really only wanted it to ever kind of play in the background out of focus. 
And I think, right. but you do see snippets. Yeah, yeah we dropped, yeah. we dropped it. And I, I kind of wish to this day that it had just stayed out of focus in the background. I think that would have been strong. I was, I will admit, I was surprised that we saw any footage from it. I assumed it would be one of those things where you only watch someone watching it. Essentially, yeah. like, I think it know, was mainly right. just yeah. shot. So there was something playing in the theater. So there would be the, the, the right light and the, yeah. I think it was well done, though. Like the the glimpses yeah, you totally see, well it works. But I agree with you that probably there's nothing scarier than never knowing and having it live entirely in your mind. You know, it's a weird memory that just got dislodged for me. Um, I, I remember being on an airplane uh, and whenever I would fly, I, I would try to get Empire Magazine because... Uh, American airports are one of the only places you can find it regularly. And David, uh, Empire Magazine is like a film magazine based out of the UK. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it was very important to me. But I remember, I guess it must have been in 2009, reading an issue of Empire Magazine where they had this article. It was like a two-page spread that was split into like a triptych, right? It was like three parallel column articles that was... The three of the genre masters of the 80s are all coming out of retirement and have new movies next year. And it was John Carpenter, the ward, Joe Dante, the whole and John Landis, Burke and Hare. And I remember reading this with the sense of like, holy shit, that's what all three of them coming back. And it's like fucking Carpenter's making low budget horror again. And Landis is working with Simon Pegg and Joe Dante's doing 3D. And then I just wish like, I liked all three of those movies. I wish I liked any of those movies, it's man. It's bizarre how all three sort of belly flop. And then Dante's the only one of the three who's done a narrative. Well, we almost worked with him as well. Film, we we, we ooh, actually did work with him for a year. On what? Uh, we, we had a script called Bad Out of Hell, which was um, a short version of the pitch. It's a uh, red eye flight from New York to L.A. one night and. Uh, not long after takeoff, a bunch of people stand up and say, uh, sorry, we've taken the plane. We are in control of the plane. Uh, there's six people in first class. They're vampires. We're just going to kill them. And then you guys will land in L.A. and you can arrest us and do whatever you want. But if you don't let us kill them, we're taking the plane into the fucking ground. So that's the movie. And that's cool. We had Joe for about a year and just the financers were uh, thieves and rapscallions uh, and just a terrible experience with them. But Joe was amazing. And. I truly think if anybody put Joe in the right position, Joe is good to go. Joe's ready to make another great film. Joe is on fire still. I feel that way, too. Of those three, I mean, I really dislike burying the ex. But he is a guy who I don't doubt still has his fastball and still has his heart in the game. I just I, I, I have fundamental issues with that script that I don't think anyone could have fixed. And I think he does not have nearly the resources to be able to pull off any version of that film that is even presentable. He's and he's always been the guy who had five dollars less than he needed on everything. Always forever. And I feel like it's the reason that Joe isn't considered the equal of the guys he should be the equal of because he he is. He's absolutely got the chops. Anybody that made inner space should have been making gigantic blockbuster hit comedy action whatevers for decades. I mean, he's one of my favorite guys of all time. I talk about him all the time on this podcast. I constantly threaten that we're going to do have exceptional him. taste. Griffey. We should do him. Thank you. We, we should. should we him. should. I, my, my hold off is I'm waiting for him to make another movie. I'd love to tie it yeah. into another yeah. no, film. No, and he could. And he could. Right. Whereas with Carpenter, it feels much more iffy. That right. It's going to happen. The one right. I really want him to do is the, um, the whatchamacallit. 
hasn't he been threatening to do the uh, Roger Corman movie? Yes, the man with X ray eyes. Yes, short sort of a like a, like his matinee, like yeah. like a homage, yes. right? Biopic. Yeah, that's cool. Right, that would fucking be cool. man with Roll. kaleidoscope eyes. I'm sorry, that's yes. that's what it yes. is. That's yeah. what it is. Uh, and and his his Masters of Horror is great too. Homecoming is really fucking good. I'd I'd love another Masters of Horror type show, like on one of these streamers. I get these anthologies are hard, I guess, to sort of assemble. They're hard to they're hard to put together at the financial stage. Um, and I don't truly understand why, because I know Masters still constantly it's always on somewhere. And yeah. so is that there was there was a season three sort of uh, that itself. we did for NBC. Right. And for that one I worked with Larry Fessenden. Um at the best. I fucking love Larry. But that was a disaster because we got hired and we're told you have to, if you want your script shot for the season, you have to have it turned in before the writer's strike. And we had 72 hours from when we were commenced to when we had to have our final draft turned in so that they could shoot. And we did like five drafts with Larry on the phone in that, that time period. It was crazy. Like I, that was not the ideal way to work. But they and I think if that if the writer strike hadn't happened, I do feel like there was a shot at fear itself becoming the next incarnation. Well, Blumhouse has their sort of what what's it called? The Into the Dark or the, yeah, their they do Hulu for Hulu series. Yeah, right. Right. Which I feel which like they really use connected. At, right. No. And they use as like a launching pad for like newer directors. But this feels like such an obvious time to like do this again on a streaming service with deeper pockets and sort of more production comfort. And there's another generation of guys you can bring in now. Absolutely. Like, I would make sure you pepper in a few of the old guys yeah. who are still there and want to do it. But there's a whole new generation of guys who, and you know, some of them did masters. I know lucky McKee did an episode of masters and I think lucky's amazing. Um, but I think there's a lot of guys now who would, who would really do something special if you put them in that situation with their, with these guys as their peers. And I think the anthology format plays better on streaming. I think it makes more sense to people. I mean, to just I go like we're doing Black Mirror, but it's with horror directors. Well, it's amazing the Tales from the Crypt that they haven't worked those rights out. Like, I, well, we've talked about this, but it's it, I know those rights are they're they're, they're a just nightmare. a nightmare. They're right. truly a nightmare. But. Right. I, I mean, as 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 far as we've ever solved it, it's that like. You can make a show called Tales from the Crypt or you can do a show with the Crypt Keeper and you can't do both. Right, right. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. We, <laughs> we should do two things, guys. Uh-huh. We need to do two things. One, we need to play the box office game for the war. Excellent. Okay. We have to. Yeah. And oh. two, we have to do our, our Carpenter list. Oh, what, what is it, Ben? Yeah. Sorry. We got to shout out how um, hot uh, Redis looks. No, we Norman. Talk yeah, about he's good that. looking. He yeah. looks fucking good. Norman Reedus. And the I really love seeing the '90s vibe too, man. I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, the cigarette burns, especially Drew, fucking ruled. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks, Drew, yeah. yeah. Norman, uh, we got Norman at the right time. He was uh, he was still kind of young and uh, hadn't hadn't lived the Walking Dead. Uh, uh, haggard post post yeah. Boondock and yeah. uh, Blade Two, right? I was going to say, right, it's like Boondock has disappeared, so he doesn't understand that that movie is going to make him immortal in fraternity dorm room walls forever. Uh, Oh, no, he was well aware. He knew it was coming. Really? Yeah, that was one of the conversations we had because I had seen Overnight at that point, and we had a conversation about it, and he goes, no, listen, man, me and Troy, we're going to be making those forever, man. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Have fun with that. All right, then. Well, they made another. 
but also like you're going to become like the fucking Bruce Campbell of your generation. You're going to be the king of cons. Yeah. Yeah. The king. Yeah. The king. Yes. Can we before we do those two things, David, I, I'd love to just touch on pro-life a little bit more because we gave sure. a little bit of attention to cigarette burns. And I also need some time to compile my list because I always do everything last second. Mr. Perlman. OK. The great Ron Perlman. Well, that's that's the thing I want to talk about here. And you have that effect with with Udo Kier as well in the first one. But it's like guys who just immediately are able to lend so much weight and gravitas and stakes to any any genre project. Yeah. He, just uh, from their face we, yes. and voice alone. Oh, he, he's a gift. You you can't ask. I, I The two guys that I've worked with who I genuinely think are like that, Ron Perlman for that one, and then Doug Jones in oh, yeah. uh, the Larry Fenson in, uh, piece. Because Doug is a special effect. You get, before you even put makeup on Doug, you get so much value. And then Doug makes everything come to life. And I think Ron is that same way. Ron's... He a, is. He's a living special effect. He just his right? face I mean, alone yeah. is a special effect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and he's got this great character actor soul wrapped in Lon Chaney's body. So he's got the physical exterior that is startling, whether it's meant to be menacing or whether it's meant to be sympathetic. Like he it's really remarkable how much range you get out of Perlman looking the way Perlman looks, whether it's Hellboy or this. But you can you can both of them, I think, work really well with him. Um, yeah, he was he was terrific on this film. And uh, when we initially wrote it, his van that he's driving around and was supposed to it's supposed to be one of those vans that the anti-abortion activists have with all the photos and stuff on the outside where they have the right, terrible like, pictures. Oh, yeah. Sure. Oh, they're horrible. And the only reason it wasn't was John was like, I don't want to look at that shit all day. No, <laughs> no, nah, it's fine. Sure. I get it. Ron will sell it. So and uh, and I think Ron's the reason that that holds together. We We were really rushed and it was a really frantic shoot. But Ron. Was it an eight day shoot? Like truly, like you only had eight days. Yeah, eight yeah. days. And we've got yeah. complicated effects. We have a little monster baby. We have all sorts of crazy shit that had to have a floor that had to explode. It was not a uh, it was not an eight day shoot. That was not the way that was supposed to work. But I think Ron made it work. And um, the last night we were in Toronto uh, or in uh, Vancouver for uh, that one, uh, you know, the Sutton place. Um, the hotel that's up there, there's this one hotel that is the industry hotel. And for a long time in Vancouver, if you were shooting anything up there, you were probably staying at Sutton place. And that bar, Ron, the way Ron put it was I could sit down here and just watch my whole life go by because of all the stuff that wow. shoots in, in, in Vancouver. And so the last night we're in the bar and it's Ron and it's, um, John and it's myself and we're sitting around and, uh, Bob Shea walks in. Mm. And I guess he's in town for something else. And this is post in the mouth of madness. And so Bob sees John Carpenter. He walks over, literally puts his hand on Ron Perlman to lean down and talk to John Carpenter and tell him, you should come over and sit with me and have drinks with me. And then walks back over. And he's about five feet away. And Ron Perlman goes, I don't think any of us are coming over there. You cocksucker. <laughs> <laughs> and then which Shay kind of looks startled. and then. John just starts belly laughing and Shay stays on the other side of the room, kind of drinking over the course night all night. Ron's telling stories about terrible new line experiences and he's telling Bob Shay stories. And then John starts telling Bob Shay stories. And it was wild energy because I 
being who I am, I'm like, you know what? I probably shouldn't even be at this table. I shouldn't be. I should be over there. So Bob Shea takes offense. He doesn't see my face and I'm not going to cut. It's right. Fearless. Ron Perlman doesn't care. And John Carpenter doesn't care. And it was the rowdiest table I've ever been at. Just shit talking across a room at somebody just throwing footballs. Well, because all night. The, now Perlman's like, I want to grind my axe so hard that the oh, yeah. sparks 100%. are like hitting Bob Shea, essentially. Right. And then the very end of the night, the only real interaction I had with Ron that whole night, you know, telling stories, whatever. But at the end of the night, finally, he's going up to the elevator and he grabs us by the arm, grabs Rebecca by one, grabs me by one, just says, good words, gets in the elevator and goes, wow. <laughs> Like, all right, I'll take it, man. That's <laughs> a good words is good enough. Uh, the final question: uh, Does it depress you to think that you made pro life like fifteen years ago? Uh, I, I think one of the more sort of successful films to throw a satirical bent on like abortion panic in America, and now we're facing the full repelling of Roe v. Wade, rather than things having gotten better since then. I honestly thought we were at the we were maybe a little late with ours. Like, oh, it's right. We missed the bell curve. We got this locked down. No, no, nightmare. Really not. Nightmare. We live. And it's it is really shocking to think that we are less uh, that we are less stable in those rights than we were when we made that. Uh, It's crazy. Right. Right. And that's like you're making that like 10 years after uh, Citizen Ruth which yeah. you also want to believe is at the peak of the bell curve of exactly. You're like, Oh, we're, we're doing it because we know we can laugh now. It's right. over. We can, we can all relax laugh now. Yeah. No, um, that's wild. Let's talk about, uh, the words box office weekend. So I assume this open to, uh, number one, $35 million. What, what are we looking at here? Number 70, $7,000. Oh. Not great. Oh. 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 So, uh, oh it's not in the top five, actually. Number oh, it's not one in the top five? A, okay. Ouch. No. Number one is the third film in a franchise. What weekend is it? Oh, it's July. I'm sorry. July 8th, 2001. Jeez. So post-July 4th weekend. Um... So, uh, yeah, number one, it's uh, the, the second weekend of a big uh, threequel, you know, a, is a third entry. Is it Transformers Dark of the Moon? Sure is. Yeah. The best of the Transformers, in my opinion, maybe, or the first. You I and I know. disagree on that, but yeah. Uh, really? I think the first is the best. I think the first no, is No, maybe just... it's the first. It's the best of the sequels. There's the only good sequel, really. Yes, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Dark of the Moon. I love Dark of the Moon. I saw it in 3D. I do the, too. It's the, wild. The, the jumping sequence is really cool. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's probably stupid. I went to Russia for that one. You went to Russia? I saw that in Moscow. Oh, like for a junket? Yeah. They, wow. uh, they, they did the junket. That was in, in the Bobby. real heyday of the junkets. Right. Yeah. Those in particular, the Transformers junkets were insane. The money they spent. We did the Moscow junket for that. And then the next one we did in Hong Kong. So, yeah, uh, what a bizarre reason to go somewhere. Yes, I came to I came to Moscow and I spent three days here to watch Transformers and Lincoln Park. The junket for the fifth one was uh, in medieval England, right? Yes. Yes. They actually transported everyone yeah, back, in time. back in time. Inside yeah, Merlin's great. cave where Grimlock lives. Um, <laughs> sorry, David, number two at the box office. Number two, at the box office is new this week. It's a comedy, a hit comedy that gets a sequel. It's a hit comedy in 2011 that gets a sequel. Is, is it, it Horrible Bosses? That's right. That's is that what you're going to guess, Drew? Yes, okay. it was. All right. I'll let you take the next one. No, you're doing great. Uh, 
the next one, a little tougher, also new this week, also a comedy, a, a kid's comedy, more family-oriented. Okay. But uh, with a, a comedy star of the moment. A comedy star the of the poster, moment. His hands are on his hips. Comedy. Yep. He's playing a... a, a he, it's, he has a job. Is he, he the job. Tooth Fairy? Mm. Nope. Uh, is the job the title? Or is that just the yep. hook? Nope. Nope, nope, the job is the title. So it's it's a classic, this guy doing that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Hands on hips, comedy star of the moment, 2011, more family-oriented. It is a hit? It's a mild hit. Uh, let's see. It's, op- it's opening to 20, and it makes 80 domestic. Yeah, not a big hit. Oh, <laughs> I know what it is. I know what it is. Kevin James is zookeeper. That's right. Kevin James oh, is. is wow. The Drop the the. It's cleaner. It's just called zookeeper. Oh, man. A movie I saw in theaters because the character's name is Griffin. <laughs> That's, the, That's reason the reason you why. Saw it in theaters? Griff's got to look out for other Griffs. Huh. How do you feel he represented your name? Not well. Also, Nick Nolte <laughs> voices a gorilla who's obsessed with Applebee's. <laughs> The, the um, voice cast the animals, of that movie is demented. They talk, right? right. right. I think the animals talk. Cher plays a lion. Stallone's in it. Judd Apatow plays an elephant. Yeah. Is that the tail end of Kevin James's sort of A-list career? Here comes or the boom. Or does he have a couple more? Well, I know, but like, when's that? That's the next year, I want to say. Right. So like, it's, it's falling off is what I'm saying here, yeah, right? Like, it's sort of like, yeah, here comes the boom is 2012. Yeah. yeah the wheels are getting wobbly so, right about here. Right. Right. They, they, it's diminishing returns from here and else. He goes back to Blart, you know, like he's sort of like, okay, you know, anyway. Uh, number four at the box office, Griffin, it's Blart. an animated film. Blart 2 back is like his Blart. escape from LA. Hey, back to Blart. Uh, I'm sorry, David, number four? It's an animated film that you have some opinions on. Oh boy. Uh, it's Cars 2? Yeah, it's Cars 2. Cars 2 yeah. uh, is number four at the box office. Number five is another comedy. It's just crazy. Looking back 10 years ago, too yeah. many comedies, many of them bad. You know, people say, oh, it's well, it's global box office. It's this, it's that. It's also that they they oversaturated with shitty comedies. I mean, you cannot deny it. It was post hangover. Exactly. This is two years after hangover. So we're at like the peak of everyone being all in back in on it. And hangover was uh, internationally successful. That's the thing. Everyone was like, can we make these movies work overseas? And this movie, I you know, it's it is not as bad as Zookeeper. I think it's actually probably better than Horrible Bosses. It's not good, hmm. uh, or I don't remember it being particularly good. It's another uh, X person has a job, um, movie. It's a you know a female comedy star. It's a female comedy star. It, is it? It's not the Heat, is it? No. But is it a McCarthy? No. Because Bridesmaids is this year. This is 2011. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. so right. later. Okay. Okay. It's a female comedian with a job. You don't think it's great. I would call her a comedian. Oh, okay. I wouldn't call her a comedian. Okay. She's okay. a comedy. She's just, because she'll do dramas too, but she was a consistent comedy star. She made many hmm. hit comedy films, including a couple with her co star in this movie. Huh. Okay. So this is a re teaming. No, this is their first uh, collaboration. This is their first, but then they do more. They do one more. They do another bad comedy together. It's this isn't proposal, an Aniston. Is it? It's not the proposal. It's not Aniston. 
She's now retired from acting. Oh, it's Cameron Diaz. Oh, okay. Cameron Diaz. And she is the bad teacher. She's a bad teacher. Some teachers are good. Not not this one. No, no, real bad. bad. That's another that's like if if the podcast goes for 15 more years, you'll know we're tapped out when we're doing bad blank as a Patreon series. <laughs> yeah, the bad <laughs> occupations. And that's just a, a, you know, one of those Siegel performances where he's like, I'm going to show up and give you 10% of my energy and it's still going to work. But you're yeah. going to you're going to know that I'm not exactly like all in on this. You know what I mean? He's barely trying in that movie and you're like, this guy's still charming. Like, even though I can tell he doesn't want to be here. It's also one of those weird things where like for years, the thing was like Apatow wants Siegel to be a leading man and no studio will let it happen. They all think he's too weird. He looks like Frankenstein's monster. They're not letting it happen. Like, this is how he would describe it himself in interviews. And like, he's big on how I met your mother, but he kind of presents being on a network sitcom. And even that they won't transfer the credits over to movies. And then he finally like, for Gangster Marshall hits, I Love You Man hits, and then immediately he's like phoning in performances, like doing favors for Jake Kasdan is like, oh, I think I don't like this either. Yep. Yep. I mean, Gulliver's Travels, Bad Teacher, obviously the Muppet, Muppets and Five Year Engagement. Those are his passion projects. Those are passion sex projects. Sex tape. Right. Sex tape is kind of the end, right? That's and then he like, like disappears for like five years. Well, right. Post that, he did the end of the tour. Foster Wallace movie. And then, right, he's basically like, yeah, only doing little indies. Yeah. I probably could have guessed that the Muppets would end up being the passion project on the Forgetting Sarah Marshall set when they shot the Dracula musical. I've never seen anybody more giddy just to have puppets anywhere in a (sighs) building than he was that day. He and Bill Hader both were like, we have fucking Muppets. Look at this. Oh my God. It was amazing. And those were actual Henson puppets. They did that. And I think that may have been the moment where he was like, I, I should push my luck. I should see if the yeah. luck. There is no fucking Apatow, especially not that. And it's all Siegel as well. But he's like, yeah, I'm going to make a comedy about a guy who wants a Dracula musical. I'm going to get my dick out twice. <laughs> and, the, you know, Universal's like, OK. <laughs> and then they're like, wait, it's a hit. <laughs> like, wait, wait what? Like, mm-hmm. It's also just incredible how he had this machinery that worked for a long time and only stopped yeah, working when he, it seems like machinery. Well, uh, hey, guy, David, he's, wait a second. David! He's got machinery. All right, David, I took I took my microphone out of the stand. Uh, I remember when I saw that movie at the Regal Union Square, the second time he got uh, naked, uh, someone in the audience said, why do you keep getting his dick out? <laughs> said it out loud. <laughs> When you guys eventually do Apatow, please have me on for that series and give me a decent film. I want to talk okay. about a good film next time. Okay, great. So we've uh, put you down for uh, This is 40. So what I was going to say is... <laughs> no, I just think it's... Fat, like Apatow was like a franchise in and of himself. He could sort of sell anything, both by the name brand recognition, but also like their machinery of knowing like being the first comedies to go do comic conventions and have videos go viral and put deleted scenes on the internet and like all this sort of shit. Like they just had it so figured out. It all slowed down, like partly because of the industry moving away from comedy, but he also just decides to pivot to TV at the exact moment. And then by the time he wants to come back to movies, they don't really exist anymore. But the thing that's insane that he was able to work for like six consecutive years is I make a movie with someone who isn't a movie star yet. That movie makes them an A-list movie star. 
also the person who scores laughs in the fifth or sixth lead of the movie gets to be the lead of the next that's movie. the next one yeah. exactly yeah. i got your eye i got my eye on you yeah. it, it was just constant cycling of like you'd watch the movie it would mint someone to the top of the list and then tell you who the next person's gonna be yep it's a remarkable machine well it was remarkable that it worked as long as it did uh is that the end of the top five that's the end of the top five let's do our carpenter lists I will say we gotta this. Do it. We got to we got to go see Licorice Pizza. Yeah, we're seeing Licorice Pizza tonight. Humble brag. Nice. Um, very excited. I uh, hope I cry. Uh, I know it's not a movie that people say makes them cry. I just want to cry at the power of movies. Uh, I'm a fucking sap. So th- this is a, maybe the hardest ranking we've ever done. I feel like the top 11, I would say the yep. the, the order could change based on the way the fucking wind is blowing. Like, I, I you know, they. There's there's a clear distinction of like tier of like perfect masterpieces, movies that I think are pretty fucking great. And then movies that are dumb or wonky in some way, but I enjoy and only like two or three movies I I don't care for that much. But even so, if the ward's your worst movie, you're not doing that poorly. Now, Griff, are you including someone's watching me Elvis and body bags in your list? I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving off TV. So, yeah, excluding those three and and the two McQueenie swan joints. Yeah. Um, okay. So, 17 movies then. I have 18. What am I miscounting here? I think it's 18, David. What am I miscounting? You missed miss something. You missed something. I, wait. I'll go first if you want while you figure yeah, out what you ahead. missed. Okay, ready? Here's my ranking. And the, once again, the, don't at me. The fucking changes by the second. Number one, The Thing. Number two, Halloween. I almost consider putting Halloween number one just because it's such a perfect object. This would be a fair argument for it. Uh, number three, In the Mouth of Madness. Big surprise for me this series is how much I jammed on that fucking thing. I think it's a masterpiece. Number four, They Live. Number five, Escape from New York. Number six, Big Trouble in Little China. Number seven, The Fog. A movie that people thought I didn't like from our episode. I think maybe just because you love it as I much as anyone defender, loves it. So you became the guy in the middle on that episode. Maybe that's why I, don't I know. think. But like, I still rank it very high. I think that movie is very good. Uh, number eight, Starman. Number nine, Christine. Number, number 10. This is where I think people are getting angry at me. Prince of Darkness. I think most people now put that in their top five. I owe that movie another watch. I, I still think it's a, a top shelf thing, but it, it, top six films for me on a different level. Then I go 11 Assault on Precinct 13. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then this is a, a delineation point, right? Yeah. Escape from LA 12, Dark Star 13, Ghosts of Mars 14, Memoirs of Invisible Man 15. Then there's another delineation point, David we'll say I'm rude vampire 16 village of the damn 17 the ward 18 I just know you like vampires a lot more than I do I like it more than you I had forgotten to put escape from LA in. that's what it was because okay. that was the last okay. movie I watched basically yeah um okay our top three is the same the thing Halloween in the mouth of madness is my top three wow number four escape from New York for me number five prince of darkness so I do have that a lot higher than you mm-hmm. number six they live Number seven, Big Trouble in Little China. Number eight, The Fog. I can't believe I put The Fog higher than you. Well, I have Prince of Darkness. I don't know. That's But that's just a five-star uh, sure. area that we were just sure. sitting in. And then there's three yes. more movies that I love. Assault on Precinct 13 is number nine. 
Starman is number 10. Christine is number 11. Then I have Vampires at 12. Mm-hmm. Dark Star at 13. Escape from LA at 14. Ghost of Mars at 15. That's all. It's still all good vibes. Yeah. And then Memoirs, Damned, and The Ward at the bottom there. Right. So I, I extend a little more kindness to Memoirs. I obviously put Vampires much lower than you do. My seven, eight, and nine are the ones that I think are really kind of interchangeable in terms of order. And then Prince of Dark- Darkness is still a 10 for me. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where I can't be mad at anyone saying almost, you know, any of these sort of top 10 is their fave or whatever. Like, I, that's, that makes sense to me. What is your favorite, Drew? You don't have to give yeah, us a whole not list. Not to put you on you the spot. A favorite carpenter or is that a... Yeah, I, I just, I, I, as you asked, I kind of went and I, I looked at my list and I, I think for me, the top five would be... Big Trouble. Number which, one. That's number I, which one. I just, Big Trouble's unique. That's your movie. Yeah, it That's is. Your movie. Yeah. The Thing, The Thing, uh, Halloween, They Live, and Prince of Darkness for me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, The Thing is, I, I'm amazed at how well The Thing, uh, there's a lot of movies that I try to hand down to my kids that they don't necessarily love or that don't work the same way. The Thing is Toshi's favorite movie. Wow. Um, we just how old is he? He's 16. And for his 16th okay. birthday this year, we rented him an Alamo screen and let him invite his friends. And they showed the thing. And none of the other kids had seen it or even knew what it was. And so that screening sitting behind a row of 15 and 16 year olds who had no idea what was coming. Yeah. And Toshi, who was delighted at the screams and the insane rea- and they all loved it they had the best time with it it played like a million bucks for them um didn't play dated didn't play old they weren't bored by it it really delivered um i find that amazing i think that movie is still just a magic trick it is almost yeah. flawlessly suspenseful yeah yeah i mean that's the I, it's like that's my thing of like one and two being a little interchangeable for me is that like Thing is operating at a much higher level, right? Yeah. Of just like his mastery as a filmmaker. But uh, just Halloween as an object is hard to even wrap your head around, especially after Perfect. Art gave us that whole dissertation. And I don't know, as I've now dug into the sequels and everything, it does make you realize how much of a miracle that film is. Yeah, I, I only yeah, like definitely. a Halloween movie. In, in this one. dojo, there's a yeah. Halloween movie. It is that first yeah. film. And I, I don't really understand any of the rest of them in terms of the appeal, because to me, that first film is so beautifully crafted and it is such yeah. a sleek, simple object of fear. Um, yeah, I, I, I really think, you know, when he was on his game, he is the genre defining very best. And I think those top three or four films, whatever they are for you. Man, they're just inarguable. They're just unbelievable craft in every single one. I mean, he's a guy where pretty much any five people would pick as their top. You'd be like, yeah, all of those are masterpieces. Yep. Yep. You know, I was surprised that you guys didn't talk more about Richard Dysart's nose ring when you did the thing episode, because that is one of the craziest details in any of the movies that he's made. Um, And it seems like you can only see it in 4K or if you see it in a theater, like at home, you never notice the dice starts wearing a nose ring in the entire movie. I I blame this on I I never saw it in theaters and the 4K disc only came out after we recorded the episode. It's just one of those crazy little details. Um, 
All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. I cannot believe I finally got to be on Blank Check. Thank you, John. Hey, long thank overdue. You. Oh, please. Took Sorry it took this yeah. long, but it was a, a perfect capper on the miniseries. Yeah. Good way to say bye to this guy. Absolutely. And and hey, let's say thank you to Ben. Ben, good choice, man. Good fucking yeah. choice. Yeah. Thanks. It was so fucking great. Wow. Um, but uh, glad it all... Uh, Glad it all worked out. I don't know. Ben, you've been reading for your giant book. You've been reading this book, uh, the whole mini series and highlighting things and putting in stick it notes and whatever. Are there yeah. any sort of like final thoughts you want to leave us with at Carpenter at large? Well, I just think not, not I'll say to this. quote specific thing from the book, but just anything you've you've observed. Yeah, I think this is the time where this premise of our show it it's oh it always hits me in different ways where you you know you're sitting down you're watching a director like body of work start to finish and this was the one where i really was noticing like camera work i feel like for the first time or just like it was really clicking mm. with me in a way and there's just like i don't know i got really absorbed into just visual language and just like thinking a lot about what he was doing behind the camera so i'll just share that that and you know that was like something that I started to recognize like how clean and simple the stuff he was doing was one of the great voices, man. Yeah. He's the best. I was so glad to watch all his movies and spend time yeah. with him. Yeah. We'll miss him. It, it, I mean, it both felt good and terrible, but I guess, wait, shouldn't we announce? Yes, we should. We David, next, gonna right? tee yeah. you up for that. I think you should handle this announcement because it's kind of a David's choice. This is a filmmaker that you've personally stumped for for a while. She was on my bracket. Yeah. Right. And uh, and it, it, for a number of reasons uh, that I'll let you get into, it felt like this was the right time to do it. Well, she's got a new movie out. Her first in, jeez, uh, uh, 12 years. Yeah. Um, although she did some TV in between. Uh, she's, yeah, she's sort of a fundamental filmmaker for me, I guess, in terms of me falling in love with the movies. Um, but she rules and she, we talked about her and, you know, people might quibble with her as a blank check director, but we're going to get into like, she really, she really got Hollywood to make some, some very, very wild stuff, uh, at the height of her powers. And she's got a, and she's got kind of a big epic blank check. I, I cannot sing her name. Her name Penny is Marshall. Uh, oh, Campion. right. We're Jane doing Campion. Campion. Sorry. Next. I got confused uh, for a second there. You know, Power of the Dog is probably the biggest canvas she's painted on, at least in a long time. You know, yeah. like she she's back. Uh, she's got this sort of powerhouse movie that's going to be uh it's it's out right now, or yes, it's out right now on Netflix, but it's gonna be part of awards season. And so in March and January and February, we're gonna be talking camp. They're doing an amazing screening series of hers right now at the Academy Museum, their brand new giant theater that they just built. I think in the cut plays tomorrow. Oh, such David, a good movie. Imagine so, yeah. seeing that Ruffalo dick at the Academy Museum on that big <laughs> screen. Look, we, we saw it at the quad, you and I. But I know, and it was a little screen. And we were sitting in front I, you know what, with our Chris, opera this glasses. Might be, this might be the first miniseries. Well, there's no question that it would be the first miniseries if this is true. I have to do the numbers. Where there's a majority of movies with male nudity in them with, hmm. with penis in them to be clear. Sure. That, right. You know, uh, that I think, I think it's maybe at least like five out of nine or something like that. That that's definitely more than the Brad Bird film. Uh, so. Drew, I was going to make <laughs> right. the exact same joke. Uh, <laughs> I was rushing uh, towards it. 
New Zealand queen, Jane Campion. Yeah. We're going to start yeah. with two friends, her, which was sort of a, you know, kind of a TV movie. We played some film festivals and we have to do a movie called two friends. Yeah, right. And to be clear, it's not the two friends. That's no, our competitive friends. event. The movie is just called two friends. Uh, and then sweetie angel at my table, the piano portrait of a lady, Holy smoke in the cup, bright star power of the dog. What a run it's going to be. But just to be clear at the time you're listening to this, because there's obviously a little bit of a gap there. We have to pay off a balance of past mini series. So the next three episodes are going to be Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta. Yeah. Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Yeah. And Lana Wachowski's The Matrix Resurrections. Yes! Oh my so God. those will be the next three episodes. And then Two Friends begins in January. Uh, the Jane Campion Correct. series. My big problem with almost every movie right now is that it's not The Matrix Resurrections. I get so fucking amped every time I see that trailer and then so angry when it ends and I have to watch anything else. It's coming. <laughs> it's very soon. It's done. It looks it's ready. So fuck. Talk about a director who we thought was done. Where yeah. it just felt like yeah. they're done. Yeah. They're burned out. Might be they're retired. Tired. Might be yeah. retired. The, the yeah. fucking the siblings split up. The sisters don't want to work together anymore. Neither of them is going to make a movie ever again. And then here comes those bananas looking fucking blockbuster. <laughs> In so long. Yeah. It's going to be good. Anyway, but so that's the plan. Goodbye, Johnny. Thank you again, Drew. Take us out, Griffin. Let's go see pizza. Yeah, I can't wait to get a slice of that licorice pizza. Um, Look, thank you all for listening. Drew, uh, people should watch Voix on Netflix. Yes. December 6th, it will be on Netflix, uh, produced by David Fincher and David Pryor. And uh, you can find my newsletters at drewmcweeny.substack.com or thelast80snewsletter.substack.com where I am reviewing every single film of the 1980s chronologically. Because I'm a crazy uh, person. No, that sounds easy. Um, and uh, hey, once again, people should check out uh, Pro-Life and uh, Thank you. Rep Burns. Uh, both viewable on, on Tubi and Vudu and other platforms and definitely worth your time if you've been following us on this whole Carpenter journey. Although, neither. Or the squeamish. Uh, they're both pretty fucking intense. Um, they they're gnarly. They're gnarly. <laughs> they're gnarly. They're fucking gnarly. You're a dang ass freak. I don't know if I'm allowed to Thank give you. you that title or no. if that's Ben only. No. Can I, no, no, I will happily please. wear it. Thank you. Yes, you are officially a dang ass freak, my friend. Thank dang you. ass freak Thank shit you. in both of those. Um, Folks, thank you all for listening. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media. Uh, AJ McKeon and Alex Barron for our editing. Nick Loriano and JJ Birch for our research. Pat Reynolds, Joe Bowen for our artwork. Leigh Montgomery, Great American Novel for our theme song. Their new album, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Online, is available wherever kids listen to albums. Uh, and you can go to blankcheck. No, not, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> you can go to patreon.com <laughs> slash blank check oh oh there we go uh to listen to of course uh watching a, a trilogy of films that are even uh more demented than uh, carpenter's two master of horror segments uh we're of course talking about tim allen's santa claus trilogy uh watching those over on patreon got it and in your soul for some real nerdy shit uh and go to our shopify page for some new merch we got some new merch coming for christmas time uh stay tuned for that uh and as we said uh, next week uh, benedetta we're we're back with uh, a gold member himself uh giving us uh, 
horny non-movie. Uh, cannot fucking wait. The movies are back. And, as always, fuck Sean Landis. Fuck John Landis. <laughs>